This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 69 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known by all of us by now as just simply DCU. And whether you're driving off the lot or you're refinancing, DCU can help you save on your next auto loan with rates as low as 1.49% APR. Let me say that again. They want to help you save on your next auto loan with rates as low as 1.49% APR. And you can learn more at dcu.org slash auto. Insured by the NCUA, membership required. Just head to dcu.org slash auto for more information. This episode of the podcast is also sponsored by Jag and Detroit Podcasts. John Jag Gay is a transplanted Malden, Massachusetts kid that is now in Detroit. And after 15 years in radio, he went into podcasting full time. And if you have ever wanted to have a podcast, whether it be for yourself, for fun, or for your company... He can make it sound like a professional radio show. For his clients, he takes care of everything. Recording, production, editing, getting it online. And if you're even looking for a co-host, he can help you with that too. Nobody can tell your story or your business's story better than you can. And Jag can help. And I know this because when I needed help getting the Mistress Carrie podcast up and running, I called my friend Jag and he helped me a lot. Find out more at jagandetroit.com. Okay, this is something new on the Mistress Carrie podcast. I have known record producer, engineer, and all-around musical badass Toby Wright for over 20 years. He's been a record producer and mixing engineer on some of the biggest albums with some of the biggest artists in rock history. He's a Grammy award-winning producer who also hosts his own podcast called My Right Stuff. He's worked with Alice in Chains, Metallica, Seven Dust, Korn, Queensryche, and so many others. So on this episode of the podcast, Toby Wright and I decided let's interview each other and then post the interview on our own respective podcasts. I'd never done it before. We even reference it in the episode that it's kind of like playing tennis. He got to ask me some questions, and I got to ask him some questions. And we talked about a lot. We talked about music and songwriting, overcoming personal injury, being mentally tough. We both discovered that we grew up playing the clarinet. It was a really interesting and informative and entertaining conversation And I learned so much about Toby, and I think he learned so much about me. 
Now, all of the links to find Toby and the corresponding playlist for this episode are all in the show notes of this podcast. If you've ever wanted to hear from one of the people in the studio helping to make the great music that you love, well, this episode is for you. Allow me to introduce you to Toby Wright. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the Band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. All right. How are we going to start this off? Didn't we start it already? <laughs> yeah, I guess we did, right? We started, right? <laughs> We're on the record now. We're on the record. We're actually recording. It's Hi. so good to see you. And good to see you, too. It's great to hook up in Nashville and and get reacquainted again after so many years. I know. It, it's and, uh, been forever. And when I saw that you were going to be at Rockin' Pod, I was like, oh, my God, I'm hanging out with Toby when I'm in Nashville. <laughs> and I thought the same. I thought, oh, man. And then I looked at my schedule, and it was like, oh, yes, she requested me. All right, because if not, I was going to come by your table and, you know, annihilate you anyway. So. Yeah, I was expecting it. I looked down the list of all of the people that were going to be there, and I was like, oh, okay, well, do I need to request an interview to sit down with Toby? I know the guy, but I'll just write down that I need to talk to him anyway, just to get on his very busy schedule. Yeah, right, my very busy schedule. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, a, that was fun, though. I, I really did appreciate us not having an interview in that very loud room. Um, for the 15 minutes that we were allotted, because I think that we have a lot more important things to say than we could have covered then. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, the the thing that I love so much about the podcast, I don't know about you, because this is the first time that I've done an episode where we were interviewing each other. So if I start taking over, just tell me to knock it off. <laughs> but, <Okay. laughs> but the thing that I love about it is like doing radio interviews, you're always cognizant of the time you know because you got to get into a song or get into commercials you need to stay on time and with podcasts you can have a more relaxed conversation and really either a get to know the person way better or b in our case be able to go way back and tell some funny stories because we've known each other for so long exactly Uh, that's that's the beauty of the podcasting thing because you know we're not Tight to the tight to the clock, as it were. Yeah, exactly. You know, so. And so we can always see. go back and edit stuff, which you can't do when your ass is hanging out live on the radio. Amen. 
Yeah. That must have been quite an interesting experience to be live on the radio. I mean, I, I've done a few interviews live on the radio, but to be a DJ, like, I guess you get used to it, right? Yeah, After I mean. While, just be, being live and what I, not to say, what to say. I've been doing it so long that I don't even think twice about it anymore. Mentally, what helped me, and it was always something I had the bands do when they came into the studio with me. I use the headphones as like a physical reminder that I was live because you've spent enough time with me off the air that, you know, I swear like a truck driver. So for me, the idea of putting on the headphones was like a physical reminder that I was live. And so it kind of made my brain shift to make sure that like I'm in work mode and I don't swear when I'm in work mode. I've only slipped a couple times. Joey Kramer from Aerosmith got me to slip once I said bullshit live on the air and he Uh almost fell over laughing so hard because we were just sitting there having a conversation like you and I are but we were face to face in my studio and we were laughing about something and I was like that's bullshit and you know it and he just looked at me and went and I went oh my god and I went lunging after the dump button which is the button when you're on a delay you're still live but there's like a seven second delay and it, the button right. says dump on it. And I went lunging for the dump button. And I think I got the bullshit off the air. So I was okay. Well, but well, well, if you didn't get a fine, then I guess you did, right? Well, the thing with an FCC fine is that somebody has to not only hear it, but then they have to care enough to complain and like file a complaint with the FCC. And the good okay. thing about rock and roll audiences, or at least rock radio audiences for the most part, they're not going to complain about that. <laughs> they I thought it was funny. Right. Yeah, so, of course. So, no, course. I never got in Ooh, trouble. You made a mistake. That's yeah. good. Yeah. That's good. Well, you were at a, a WAAF in Boston for like almost 30 years, right? That, yeah, 29 years. Time, yeah. 29 years. So in that time, you were the pioneer driving rock music in the greater Boston area. No doubt about it. And so, and yourself described as a Harley rider, a licensed skydiver, a pug owner, Boston Marathon tough ruck finisher, and amateur marksman, military supporter, whose call sign is Narco, veterans advocate, a guest lecturer, a motivational speaker, a baker, a gardener, and an all-around thrill seeker. Like the first thing I need to ask you is, what is a marathon, a Boston Marathon tough ruck finisher? I'm not familiar with that. Okay, so, <laughs> so the. I ran the Boston Marathon once. I, okay. I finished, I, I ran it in 2019. So it was like the last marathon that happened before the pandemic. But if you remember back at the Boston Marathon bombing, there was, I've been going to the Boston Marathon since I was a kid, because if you grow up in the Boston area, they call it Marathon Monday. Marathon Monday happens on Patriot's Day, which is a state holiday, which marks the first shot of the American Revolution, the shot heard around the world. So it's that weekend in April. And so going to college, whatever, it's it's a huge party day because half the roads in the city are closed. It's a state holiday. So everybody day drinks. There's usually a Red Sox game. It's crazy. Hundreds of thousands of people everywhere. And then when I started on the air, I was always broadcasting from somewhere along the finish line. So the Boston Marathon is like, it's just part of your thing when you grow up around here. And the year the bombing happened um, and before, there were military personnel 
that would start the marathon early in the morning before the runners would start, and they would wear full battle rattle. So 50 pounds of gear, uniforms, combat boots, and they would ruck, ruck march the marathon route. And because they would leave okay. really early in the morning, by the time they rucked to the finish, it would be the height of when the, the runners, the elite runners would be crossing the finish line. And you see all these soldiers in full battle rattle rounding the corner from Hereford onto Boylston Street, and the place goes crazy. So if you go back and look at the pictures of the bombing at the Boston Marathon, you're going to see guys in army uniforms. Those guys were there because they just finished rucking the marathon with 50-plus pounds of gear on their back. And that's why they were there, because they had just finished it. So the year after the bombing... The tough ruck was going to continue, and they did it for charity. And Homeland Security and everything made the determination that the ruck themselves, the backpacks, didn't meet the security protocols. They couldn't be on the course because of the bombing. So the BAA, the Boston Athletic Association, I know this is a long story, but I'll tell you anyway. So they they had the Boston, the the BAA went out and marked a, a route that's equivalent to the Boston Marathon that is along the Battle Road Trail in Lexington and Concord, where the actual revolutionaries fought the Redcoats. Oh, wow. Okay. And so you are rucking 26.2 miles with your rucksacks on, but you're just not allowed. And you, and it happens the weekend before Marathon Monday now. And it's to raise money for veterans charities. And so the year after the bombing, um, they were only going to let active duty military do it. And they bent the rules a little bit to let me ruck with the guys I had been embedded in Afghanistan and Iraq with and do the ruck uh. with them. And so I did the Boston Marathon four times as a rucker wearing 50 pounds on my back in combat boots. And then the fifth year I ran it on the actual course because it was a bucket list thing that I had always, every single person that's gotten drunk and watched the Boston marathon has said out loud at one point or another, someday I'm going to run it. And I just was like, I'm just going to do it. So I've done the Boston marathon five times. I did the tough ruck four times and then ran it once. That's absolutely amazing. Physically, no the tough it. ruck is harder. Mentally, the marathon right. is harder. Okay. Because the ruck, at least you're there with a bunch of other people embracing the suck together. Whereas when you're running, right. even if you're with a team, any runner knows like it's kind of you against your own brain. Right. And I exactly. was, and when I ran the marathon, it was cold and windy and then it got really hot. Like we went through everything but snow and locusts in the the time that I was on the course <laughs> and it was miserable and horrible. And I was afraid I wasn't going to finish. And the radio station was broadcasting live from the finish line. So I had to finish because I would have looked like an idiot live on the radio if I didn't. We raised oh, a yeah. bunch of money. And so, yeah, I'm very proud of the fact that I, did the ruck four times, finished it all four times, and then ran the marathon and finished it once. That's fantastic. I'm, I'm very proud of you, actually. Thank you. That's great. I don't think I could do that. Yeah, you could. My health would... I'm not healthy know. either. You know what it is? You, you, it's, it's a mental thing, and I learned a lot about myself, and the lessons I learned on the course of either the ruck or the marathon I've carried through, they were really hard life lessons, and that was – your brain is capable of way more than you think that you can handle. And 
And you're a lot stronger than you think you can be when you need to be. And for me, what motivated me was getting angry. Okay. Like, I can do anything if I'm pissed off. And so I I just, I got mad at the course. I got mad at, you know, the tough ruck, you wear ribbons on your rucksack um, that commemorate the the whole point of wearing the ruck is you're carrying it for someone that is not here anymore to carry it themselves. So it commemorates fallen soldiers, fallen police officers, fallen firefighters, fallen EMS workers. And so it's really hard to quit when the person in front of you has got 10 names of people that aren't here anymore that yeah, died okay. in the line of duty. Like right. you find a new place in your brain. And those life lessons have helped me through personal stuff, the professional stuff I've gone through after the radio station went off the air, like that mental kind of toughness. Those lessons were hard learned, but incredibly life transforming for me. I bet. I mean, I'm just, I I have chills all over my body as you're telling me this. Well, you've gone through a lot physically too, though. Like, like I didn't know about your accident until you and I sat down at rock and pod. Like I had no idea that you had been injured and coming back from serious injury is something that requires that mental toughness. It's the same thing. Oh, for sure. And it took me a long time to heal, you know, and I'm still, I don't consider myself 100% healed, but, you know, other people look at me and go, damn, dude, you know, you're doing great, you know, so. Yeah, you could, so will you tell me what happened real quick? Just, I mean, you don't have to get into the gory medical stuff, but like you got into a vehicle accident, right? Yeah, I got into a car accident in Topanga Canyon out here in California. Um, I was on my way home from a Hollywood Records uh, something. It was a meeting, I think. Um, And I got sandwiched. Um, I, some lady like jammed on her brakes in front of me. I slow, I, I jammed on the brakes. I stopped. And then I got hit from behind from a lady in an SUV who was on her phone. And, the, you know, then uh, consequently my car was an accordion. She pushed me into the car in front of me and so on and so forth. They had to take me out through the sunroof. Anyway, they took me out through the sunroof. They took me to the hospital and I couldn't feel the right side of my body. And, you know, it's like, I was numb. So after that, I went to all these doctors and all that stuff, and they said, oh, I can't help you, but uh, here's some, here's some, here's a prescription. And uh, I didn't take them because I was numb, and I don't need pain medication for, you know, a, a numb right side of my body. So it turned out to be nerve damage, and I ended up going on the internet and figuring out that there was this thing called sound healing that really, that ended up helping me greatly uh, after I made a bunch of different, what I call tonalities and things like that. Um, and it was, you know, it, it just helped me come back and in my sleep. So there's a, and I started a company all about it called Tomes and we can talk about that later. Yeah. It's it, any kind of injury. I think, I think it doesn't matter if it's a sports injury, if it's a vehicle injury, if it's, if it's some kind of a, a diagnosis, like a cancer diagnosis there, when you're fighting your own body there, you have to find a place in your brain that that allows you to fight through it. And that, I don't know where that place in your brain is, but once you tap into that strength that you have that you didn't know you had, it's almost like anything is possible. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, I was in another accident when I was 17 that required, you know, I had a bunch of broken bones and things, and that was another vehicle accident. 
and it was that was, it was really bad. Um, and so that one required a lot of mental. Okay, kid, you can do this. Yes, you can walk again. You know, they told me I'd never walk again. Like what? Of course I'm going to walk again. I'm friggin' 17 years old. I got a whole life ahead of me. No, sorry, your hips and your pelvis are too shattered. No, they're not. Watch. And I did. Yeah, and that's walk in a pool the whole nine yards. Yeah, that's that's the that's the thing I'm talking about. Or it's like, you know, I, I do a lot of work with like injured veterans and stuff, and they say that they just they just have to say, like, tell me I can't do something. It's almost like you right. need that negative person in your life to tell you you can't do that to be motivated to do it. Like I love the word no. Right. Because it's so motivating. <laughs> You know, and like, like, I didn't know that you had been injured as a kid because I was born with a tethered spinal cord and I had all kinds of nerve damage on the left side of my body growing up. And had I not had the surgeries I had before I stopped growing, they said I would be in a wheelchair by the time I went to my senior prom and I would be dead by the time I was 30. So to me, that's what I was thinking about running for the hospital that saved my life finishing the Boston Marathon when I wasn't even supposed to be alive if it wasn't for that hospital. So it's like you have to come through that stuff, you know? Amen. God, you gave me chills everywhere. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to start a a self-help series, Toby. We're just going to... I think we are, yeah. By the end of this podcast, people are going to be signing up to run marathons across the country. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Well, with the with with the strength to do it. Yeah, exactly. I want to know. I I want to know from you. I I ask this a lot from musicians and stuff. Okay. Um, there's two eras in music in your adolescence, at least that I've been able to identify. There's the music you inherit that you're taught by your family, your mom, your dad, your older brothers, the cool uncle. And then there's a line in the sand where you discover your music and go, no, this is what I like. And that becomes your kind of musical identity. So because you do what you do, music has had to have been a part of your life growing up. So what was the music that you got gifted? And then what was the music that you discovered that was yours? Okay. That's pretty easy, actually. So the music I got gifted was by my dad. He uh, ran Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts for a while. He was a professional saxophone player and he was, you know, just into the music. And so he had me playing flute and clarinet and a bunch of woodwind instruments. Wait, you played clarinet too? Yeah, man. That's what the book teeth are for. Hell yeah, dude. You're the first clarinet (laughs) player I've had on the show. Me too. All right. Nice. All right. Sorry to interrupt. You're a woodwind guy. Playing the flute, uh, so clarinet, all of the, the, Yep, yep. And then I tried the trumpet. I just didn't have the armature or whatever you call it for it. Didn't have the strength in my face, basically, to, to hold those notes. Um, you know, tried was looking, you know, my dad was a big jazz guy. So, you know, I got into playing some keyboards and, you know, piano and stuff like that. Um, and then that led me, my then my mom and dad got divorced. And my mom turned into the quintessential groupie slash, uh, you know, 60s hippie, right? Because I, I was born in 61, and this was in, you know, 1970, I think they got divorced, or maybe even earlier. Um, and, you know, 
I, I, I was at Woodstock. Uh, she was like the, the whole epitome. Uh, my first concert was, uh, was Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and Creedence and Creedence at the, um, <laughs> and I know, look at your face, um, <laughs> at the Fillmore East in New York. Wait, you went to on, Woodstock? I was in a, yep, I was in Woodstock when I was seven years old. I went to 94 and 99, but I did not get to go to 69 because I wasn't born yet. I can't believe you were yeah. there as a kid. My mom was absolutely crazy. And she just drugged me out wherever she went. I went. So that's how I got to go see the shows, um, you know, that I saw and got to go see Woodstock as well, because she just dragged me wherever I went. So I'm adopted by, I'm her kid, but I was adopted um, by by the, the guy I call dad, right? The professional saxophone player guy who I love him as, a, you know, he is my dad. I don't know anybody else, right? So to answer the question, to get more into the music side of it, like, you know, I started, I uh, went to college and at NYU and then I was working at Electric Lady Studios in, in New York City and then got sick of New York at 18 and said, you know what, I'm out. And I moved to Los Angeles and joined a couple of teams here and built some studios and then just started working. And then that's how I found, I think, you know, my music, right? So I think my music was more a guitar style, Southern Rocky I really had a kin to like Skinner and, you know, the Allman Brothers and, you know, all that kind of good Southern rock and roll dating all the way back to, you know, what what is now like the Delta Blues and stuff like that. Right. And I really I don't know why it just kind of turned me on. And that was my shit. And then I got into, you know, producing bands that weren't that. You know, they were completely the opposite. Like when you and I met, it was in like 99 and I was producing Seven Dust's Home at uh, was it, Longview Farm in Massachusetts, right? And so, you know, that stuff is completely different than all that. So, you know, it's completely rhythmic driven and, it, it, you know, it's badass, period. All of that I really love too. And so, I, I don't know, I just, for me, it's a whole plethora of music. It's not just one, I can't just go down one lane, you know what I mean? I got... I got to have it all. <laughs> this is the second time that Electric Lady Studios has come up on my podcast because recently I interviewed Dan Murphy from the band All Good Things and his aunt okay. and uncle ran that studio. Who? I don't I don't know what his aunt and uncle's name is, but he grew up going there because his aunt and uncle worked there and ran it. I don't know what wow. era, okay. but it it came up and when I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, because even though I'm not in New York, like, I know what an important studio that place was and is for music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We'll hear Toby Wright talk about Electric Lady Studios right after a word from our sponsor. Okay, now we can hear Toby talk about Electric Lady Studios in New York. You know, back in the day, uh, you know, Jimmy, he purchased it. It, it, he lived upstairs in an apartment um, on the third floor, which is now Studio C. And then there was a ballroom, uh, which is Studio A. And the ballroom was underneath, you know, and down in the sub-basement, basically. And so, you know, that turned into Studio A. And he had, he purchased the building when he had his first successful recording. And then it was, he named it Electric Lady Studios. And then, boom, the whole building was his. And, you know, you go there today and there used to be a huge mural 
you know, all down the, a big hallway leading back to Studio C or back to Studio B. And they've since, you know, chopped it up and put it in different places. And, you know, it's it's kind of a shame what they've done. But at the same time, you know, you move on. You know, and some of the mural was sold to people and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it was a really, really special place to to grow up in the music industry. Music is one of those things where you can love it like I do. I feel like my gift of it is hearing it and kind of knowing if it's good. Like, I have a lot of bands that will ask me, like, well, listen to the songs and tell us which ones you think will be successful on the radio and, like, which ones you like the best. You listen to music with a completely different ear because you can look at a song like a surgeon and kind of pick it apart piece by piece. How do you realize you have that gift? Because I know I don't have it. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I, you know, writing songs, it, it comes to mind. Um, you know, you met my partner earlier, Brian, he and I write songs together. And so we'll pick them apart. And, you know, it just comes from, I think, experience. Like I've spent years and years and years behind the console, uh, you know, making some very important records with some amazing producers. And I love to learn from those guys because, you know, that's where you really learn the chops is from, you know, a mentor. And so I was taught early on that, you know, you should a mentor should be somebody in your life that, you know, has accomplished way more than you ever want to accomplish. And so I picked out a whole bunch of guys, Ron Nevis and Ted Templeman. Those two men alone taught me so much in the studio. It was just ridiculous. You know, and then obviously I had, you know, other mentors, and, you know, in bands as well, you know, like Lars Ulrich when he when Metallica came through. And I did the End Justice for All record. That was a completely different learning experience on how to record. And so, you know, it just, just all of those things, you get, you get to know, like, you know, that feels good going from that verse into that pre-chorus or B section or whatever you want to call it, and then into a chorus. Or let's skip that part and let's go right from the verse right into the chorus because that feels good and it doesn't mess with the story. And so you have to be cognizant when you're picking that shit apart you have to be very, very cognizant of, you know, are you messing up the story, right? Because you, you can't just go for the hook and get out. It just doesn't work that way. You know, even though most listeners today have what they call ADD or ADHD or whatever, and they can't listen for more than 10 seconds, you know, like that's their loss. <laughs> well, like most people that are going to listen to my show know who Lars Ulrich is, obviously. But the guys you're talking about, the mentors you're talking about, can you right. kind of give me a, a Reader's Digest version of who those guys are and why you chose them as your mentor? Um, I, I probably chose them because they were in, in my studio and I, and I got to work with, with them. Uh, Ron Nevison is a man who did, oh my, my God, uh, the Heart Comeback Records and then Bad Animals I did with him. Uh, what else did we We did like seven or eight records together we did uh my goodness some survivors some triumph some uh some patty Smythe, some oh my god he that man has done the, he did the entire ufo catalog uh he worked with zeppelin back in the day um and so he has so many 
amazing things to teach you on a daily basis. Uh, and just engineering for him and being his assistant, you know, I'd set stuff up and, you know, put a microphone here and, you know, knowing his choice in microphones, I would, you know, put those out and place them wherever he wanted when we were tracking drums and whatnot. He'd come out and look around and either go, yep, that's right. Or damn, you're stupid. Here, <laughs> try this over here. Try this over here. And he, he didn't mince words either. He didn't, you know, I was talking to uh, my buddy Frankie Sullivan the other day, the man who wrote, uh, co-wrote uh, Eye of the Tiger. And we, had, he and I and Ron had worked together on a couple of records. And uh, on the podcast, he said, you know, there's something about Ron. Just remember, he, he's not an asshole. He's just demanding. Demanding. That's, that's the key right there. So when you think about that, because there are a lot of people out there that, you know, musicians are like, oh, Ron Neverson, ah, go away. Yeah, but he's this, he's that. Yeah, but he's brilliant, too, because all of these records came to fruition because of him. Right. And if, and if it wasn't for him, they wouldn't be there. And I'm honored to say that I worked under him and I learned a shit ton from him. Ted Templeman, on the other hand, he is responsible for Van Halen, Van Morrison. And, you know, he was in a, in a band way back in the day. Um, I can't remember the name of the band, but I do remember the song. Um, but he um, he was another one that, you know, just listen to Van Halen. Like, you know, Gene Simmons takes credit for finding Van Halen. Okay, that's fine and everything. If that's true, who knows? But at the same time, Ted Templeman is the man who brought him to us, right? Without Ted and his vision on what Van Halen can sound like, we wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't know Eddie as we know Eddie today. It's one of those so, things where I think a lot of music lovers, the consumers of it, the, the, the end set of ears, the fans, right? it's hard to imagine what a guy like that would have to do with making Van Halen sound good because it's Eddie Van Halen. And I, you're the first producer that I've had on the show. Okay. So when we were at rock and pod, I asked right. Billy Sheehan, the famous bass player, what is yes. a, what is the bass player's role in the band? It seems like a ridiculous question to ask a guy like Billy Sheehan, but who's going to give me a better answer than a bass player of his caliber? So exactly. I'll pose the question to you. What do you think a producer's role is? Because these guys you're talking about that help to make these iconic albums, yourself included, what's the producer's role in getting that record done? Oh, God. It goes to, you know, making sure we got the budget making sure the budget is spent correctly. The admin side, as well as the musical side, as well as taking care of all the technical shit, like, you know, making sure that your tape machine is aligned correctly and that your microphones are working and, you know, things like that, which is an engineer's job as well. But it's a producer's job to also check him and make sure that he's getting the job done correctly and to the best of his ability and how the producer would like it done. So the producer basically oversees the entire project, right? And back in the day, that man was usually on staff at a label, um, and then we became independent. So I, I never was on staff at a label yet. You never know. Um, and so, you know, when I, I was an independent producer, I would get, you know, I had a manager, so I'd get called up, you know, my manager would make calls, and uh, next thing I know, I'd be, you know, hey, do you want to work with so-and-so? And I'd be like, hell yeah, let's make a record, come on. So we they put, you know, my management would put together the budget and all that. I'd go and take care of the music. 
So I would go to pre-production where I would keep the band in until I felt like we had enough songs to choose from to make a 10 song or 11 song or 12 song record, like whatever the label wanted. Right. And before you start spending the money on the expensive studio. So pre-production is like, yeah, rehearsals, writing before you write the big check to get near the, the good gear. Exactly. So you're basically in a rehearsal hall. Right. And, you know, you got everybody set up around you, you know, maybe hopefully you have a little recording, something, something. So you can, you know, you can record what you, you know, what you're rehearsing so you can listen back. Because one of my big things about rehearsal is that, you know, everybody's trying to play and listen at the same time. Well, you can't do that. Be both effective and have an opinion at the end of it. You can, but it's going to be false. But at the same, you know, getting back to the question, I think that, you know, it's really important that the producer makes sure that all the songs are happening, not just one or two, um, and that they can be the best that they can be. And that comes from, you know, experience and with arrangements and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you have to know, you know, where where can you take this song? Is that the right, are those the best chords that can be played for the chorus for the melody? Or is that the best melody for you know, that can be gotten out of that chorus, for instance. So, it, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into it. There's a lot of psychology that goes into it because you're dealing with musicians and you're dealing with artists who, you know, if you fuck with them too much, they're going to turn, turn tail and run on you. Um, but to get the best out of somebody, that's pushing the, you have to push that envelope right to the edge. And, you know, sometimes people break down and cry. Sometimes they, you know, scream and yell at you. You know, sometimes, and that's all good emotion to come out because that can all be recorded into the music. I had one singer, uh, a female, and she <laughs> had a had a problem, <laughs> and you know, she all of a sudden it was with her boyfriend. All of a sudden, she started screaming at me. I was like, "What is going on with you?" You know, I'm a very very chill person, so I sat down with her and I said, "What's up?" You know, about my boyfriend, blah blah blah, and we were singing a song that was about hating somebody. And how, you know, and, and social media, and blah, blah, blah. And so I said, you know what? You need to channel this, all of this emotion right into this song. And I had kept, you know, a few of the takes that she did before that. And then she did, you know, four or five more for me. They were smoking. And she walked out of the, out of the, uh, the vocal booth and she goes, and she just came up and she gave me a big hug. She goes, thank you. I can now go home and give my boyfriend a hug. I was like, Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> How come I don't feel like that with my husband when I walk out of this studio? Because <laughs> you don't yell and cry and, and put enough emotion into it. Gary. Obviously not. I'm not emotional <laughs> enough. Said no one right. ever about me, by the way. Okay. <laughs> but like when I when I interview bands a lot, this is something I can't right. even count the number of bands I've asked. What it's like to write a song, especially from a super personal place, and you go into the studio with a producer, I want to hear from your perspective, like, okay, so you got this person that's got all these feelings and stuff, and they wrote this song that they love. How do you tell somebody their baby's ugly when they're paying you? Like, how do you you tweak something (laughs) that's super emotional when you're working for them? Because that's what you're talking about, like, tweaking stuff and driving it and... I, I couldn't handle that kind of criticism, no matter how nice you were about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. First of all, you do have to be nice. It's always constructive criticism with me. Um, 
so one thing that you know I, I'm, I'm thinking about right now is it was a time when you know i had to try and tell somebody just that that their baby was ugly but their baby wasn't really ugly it was just a little deformed and so you know to tell somebody that it is heartbreaking right so what i have to make sure of is that a the story doesn't get convoluted by trying to mess with it a little bit you still keep the emotion of it once that's intact and you get the trust of the writer then you can pretty much go anywhere and my you know my whole thing with them was just the fact that it needed to be personal yes but something that everyone can relate to and they had described something that was so personal that i was having a hard time like understanding what they were talking about and that was their chorus and i was like man so how do we make this more universally accepted? How can you tell me that story and tell me exactly that story, but use some different words that maybe I can relate to something in my life? And they went away, pissed off, fucking asshole guy, producer, why do we hire him? And, <laughs> but then they came back the next day and I said, so what do you got? And I was, you know, a bit nervous about it, anxious. And they sat down. They said, you know, boys, let's play the song and I'll sing it to Toby. Okay, cool. And uh, we sat down, we played it, and he blew me away. It was completely changed, but the exact thing was still there that he was trying to, to get across. And, you know, he had help from everybody in the band. And that was a good thing because, you know, you're, you're never alone when you're on a team, right? And so to be alone in that in that space would have been pretty scary for anybody, I imagine. But at the same time, he had the support and love of his band members. And, you know, to me, that was the key in getting it done. Right. Because then it, it went on to be, you know, a pretty a pretty actually cool song. And, you know, one that they picked as a single at the end when when it was time to put the record out. That's why I asked you the question, because I knew you'd have a good answer. <laughs> Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I want to ask you about WAAF. I know, I know you're probably sick of hearing all that, but you guys went off the air February 21st. Yeah. 2020, right? Yeah. After and, 50 years. Yeah. So 50 years, that's crazy. And so what was the last song that was played? Oh, so let me tell you, you're going to appreciate this because you're a music guy. Okay. So... In the end, it was me, and I was the assistant okay. program director and the midday host. Mike Shu, okay. who was our afternoon host that had done nights, done middays, was part of the morning show. He had been at the station for over 20 years. And our program director, Joe Calgaro. And okay. we were told on the Tuesday after President's Day that the station, they, they basically sold the frequency. Right. So okay. at midnight that Friday night, the station frequency was being transferred to a different owner. So we had until then. And so we took Wednesday off the air to kind of formulate a plan because it was for, I was there 29 years, worked my way up from an intern all the way to the assistant program director. It's the only radio station okay. I had ever worked at. And the band's, that got broken out of WAF, the legends in broadcasting that had come through those halls, you know, everybody from Opie and Anthony and Bob and Zip and Liz Wild and, you know, Greg Hill, who was our morning guy for 30 something years, like 
the station just had such a legacy and and that was almost the first thing we had to tackle was how do you choose right like right. how do you decide who gets to be the last song because we knew our audience was going to scrutinize the choice because they're such passionate rock fans and there's an unlimited right. amount of rock songs to choose from so we kind of sat down we <laughs> we made a list we had you know listeners were making suggestions people in the halls and we looked at it pragmatically and we were like okay well first of all the signal got sold to christian broadcasting so we knew we, we wanted it to be infused with as much satan as we could find so we were <laughs> really it. you know like if you're if you're gonna sell a car like you take it out on one last run beat beat it up a little before you sell it you know right and so we started making lists of stuff, you know, and, and people made the obvious suggestions like Stairway to Heaven and like all of that kind of stuff. But just a few weeks before the station got sold and we were going off the air, Ozzy had just released a new record. Oh, okay. And a few weeks before AAF signed on, Black Sabbath released their first record. So oh. Ozzy was the only artist that had maintained an active music career for literally the entire 50 years that AAF had been on the air. Because he literally released a record right before we went off the air. And so because of the Satan, because Black Sabbath, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the first Black Sabbath record is kind of the first heavy metal album. No, you're right. You're right. We decided that the last song on AAF should be Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath. Oh, wow. Awesome. And we went off the air at midnight and we spent that Thursday and Friday interviewing bands. We brought back employees from as far back as we could go. And we asked everybody to do AAF confessionals and to say something Uh-oh. that they did while they were at AAF that probably would have gotten them fired but since they were selling the station we could all get away with it now so people were telling <laughs> stories about stuff they stole and things they did in the office and all these crazy stories and we invited on that Friday night all the old employees people listeners were bringing cases of booze and bottles of jack and just leaving them on the steps of the studio and everybody right. knew at midnight we were going off the air and right. we told everybody you know, all the old employees each got five minutes to make their AAF confessional. And like, and so we had hundreds of people that were on the radio just telling all these amazing stories. And, um, and then at like quarter of 12, we kicked everybody out of the studio and it was just me and Mike Shue and Joe, our program director. And we each kind of got, because we were the ones that were still there running the station until the very end. And had a chance okay. to kind of talk about what the station meant to us. And um, Mike and Joe had said, and you can hear all this audio, like it's all up on YouTube. If you just look up on YouTube, like WA, a final night or final five minutes or whatever, I'm crying like a baby. Right, right. And they had told me that I should say the last thing before we and nobody wow. knew the song we didn't tell anybody what the song was going to be only the three of us in that room knew what it was going to be and <laughs> so we all thanked everybody you know we we thanked the listeners we thanked the bands we thanked all the staff we we thanked the company for letting us sign the station off because normally when a station flips or gets sold they just escort you out by the police which i can't believe they didn't do with us yeah right and 
I just told everybody to roll their windows down and hold their head up high and to put their devil horns in the air. And anytime AAF ever did anything, concerts, whatever, you know, like if you went anywhere to a show, an AAF chant would break out everywhere. And so I encouraged the entire audience to chant the AAF chant one last time. And you could hear the hundreds of people in the halls. We had a PA system set up outside. The company got um, like a police detail because people just started showing up at the studio. And everyone was just screaming AAF at the top of their lungs. And as we faded it out, it went into the rain and the very beginning of Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath. And then we turned the mics off for the last time. And the three of us just sat in that room. There's pictures of me sitting in there, holding my headphones on, just listening to that song, crying because I knew it was over. And to this day, when I hear that song, it like ruined that song for me. But then it, you know how like you have (laughs) specific memories that are associated with specific songs, which is what's great about music. Oh, yeah. That song will always Absolutely. be the soundtrack to like one of the worst days of my life and also one of the greatest gifts because it was such an honor. Like I attribute it to like being there to hold someone's hand as they die. Like it would have been so unceremoniously sad if they had just pulled the plug on the thing. And like, so them letting us make the deal out of it and pay the tribute to the station that it deserved. So when I hear that song, it literally still makes me cry. A year and a half later. I got, yeah, no, I would imagine so. It's that emotion that you don't have, remember? Yeah. And it's, <laughs> and it's, and, and we knew that people were going to scrutinize the choice and we wanted to make sure. sure. I mean, we were three music heads and it was the right. only song all three of us agreed on. And not okay. one person came to us and said, we wish you had chosen another song. And it wasn't the obvious choice. Right. All right. I wouldn't, I don't, I don't know if I would have chosen that song, but man. But it was perfect. It it is perfect because, you know, 50 years and pretty much Black Sabbath was the only band then and the only band when you went off the air, like, come on. Yeah. I mean, Ozzy had his solo stuff and had released that last album as a solo artist, but, but Ozzy was, was there. He was the timeline the soundtrack literally for AAF from its very first day to its very last day, because his last song, I mean, songs off that last record were an active rotation on our last day. Like he was that artist that had stood the test of time for all 50 years. It, it was an obvious choice in hindsight, but when we were sitting in the room trying to decide what it should be, you know, I mean, we were talking about like, rain and blood and you know trying to get sentimental with like other stuff i mean it's a huge responsibility it doesn't i mean it's the first thing you asked about af like what's the last song you played it's like that obvious thing like there had to have been (laughs) you're not just gonna play whatever showed up on the list next like you gotta put thought into that shit oh exactly so i'm very proud of the choice and i'm very proud of you for making that choice because man that's a great song it's a great band and you know, there's nobody more deserving of each other than AAF and Black Sabbath. Yeah. I mean, come on, seriously. And there was also <laughs> yeah. this fear of the unknown because, like, for me, I had been there since I was 18 years old. Okay. I had never worked anywhere else in radio. Like, right. 
So that whole that that line about what is this that stands before me, like that fear of the unknown, that taking that that step, like I don't know what's going on right in front of me. That was very real for all of us because none of us knew what we were going to do the next day when we woke up. We all were out of a job. Right, exactly. So that brings me to my next question, which is what are you doing now that you are not there anymore and it's not even there for you? So the week after, and this was obviously before COVID was what we all know it to be now. At the time, it was a story about what was going on in Wuhan, China, and maybe there was a case or two in the U.S., but it was not, you know, the third week of February of 2020 was not... So the following week, I was supposed to already have gone to this rock radio convention in Vegas. And I was slated to go there and represent WAF at this convention. And it was already paid for. So my boss was like, it's still paid for. Go find a job. So I had to get a new email address and print up business cards. And I flew to Vegas. And I went to this rock radio convention. And I ended up on a panel with all these other female rock programmers that were all at these incredibly influential stations around the country. And I was the only one that had just gotten fired. And it's like, I was living everyone else in the room's worst nightmare, right? Because rock radio, you know, you just never know if the company's going to decide we can make more money with sports talk or politics or top 40 or country or whatever. Right. And I, I was getting asked all these like post-mortem questions. Like I was being asked to do an autopsy on the body because they were all trying to learn from me what they could do to avoid. And I was pretty bitter, okay. you know, and, and pretty pissed off. And I'm still angry about it, but I've come to that acceptance part of the stages of grief, you know. And sure. so then when I got back from Vegas, now we're talking about March 1st, I had some job interviews and then COVID hit before I could land a new job. And I was like, oh boy, this is, this isn't going to be good. And because I had been at AAF so long, I had never had the opportunity to like, I call it get appraised, find out what you're worth on the open market because I was under contract, you know? So when COVID started to become a thing, I was like, well, I I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to need a place to work. And if I'm going to need a place to work, I need to build a studio. And if I'm going to build a studio, it's going to take time, construction, gear. I'm going to need to bring in some sound engineers and some experts. All of those things are going to cost me money. So I needed a company because now I'm thinking logically going, you know, I got to write this stuff off. Business expense. I got to start a company. So I launched a company, built my studio, MCHQ, which you see. Um... And hired a graphic designer, started building my website and was like, I don't know, you know, at this point, radio stations are furloughing employees, laying people off. COVID is now full on. We're all locked down. I'm in the Northeast, which got hit first. And so I I said, okay, well, you know, I, I... there, there's no rock station breaking artists in, nor- in the Northeast anymore. And I'm lucky enough to have all the relationships with the bands and the people in the industry like yourself. And I want to be able to maintain those things. So I was like, well, I got a studio. 
I want to be able to do what I can do in my own control. So I launched the Mistress Carrie podcast. I had started a video streaming show that I still do to this day um, on my Facebook page and my YouTube channel called Cocktails in the War Room that I do every Tuesday night at 8.30. And I started doing that stuff and launched the podcast and it found an audience right away, which I couldn't believe. And the, the video show had an audience and we're riding out this pandemic. I mean, the right. world, who could have predicted this, right? Right. And then I launched, uh, then I expanded the podcast in October of last year. I launched the website and my online store in December Got through the new year, started 2021, and then in May, I got hired by Westwood One and Cumulus Broadcasting, and oh, I'm cool. back on the radio. And Congratulations. So, thank you. So I work for Westwood One, and, um, and I also work for Cumulus Broadcasting, working on a station in Massachusetts, too. So back on the radio, podcast business, website, all of it. Now I'm busier than ever. Yeah, but I'm busier than I ever thought I would be. And it's really weird because I was so used to being part of a team, right? And working at a radio station. Like you were talking about, you're never alone when you're part of a team. I wasn't in a band, but I was in a gang at AAF. There were all of us and we would brainstorm ideas and work on things together. And having to do all of it myself, it's scary, especially when you're doing it all during a pandemic. And Oh, I've, for sure. I've been very fortunate that the podcast is going really well. Thank God I built the studio. Having the studio is what got me back on the radio because I had a place to work because radio stations right. sent everybody home to work remote because they couldn't be in the studio because of COVID. Right. And it's been really good. That's fantastic. Yeah. Scary, but I'm, good. I'm, yeah, exactly. And I'm proud of you for, you know, making the effort to, keep mistress Carrie alive because we love you and you know the world would not be the same without your voice and your face out there thank you it was just it was one of those things where i was like i don't know what else to do right like this is right, what i've been right. doing my whole career my whole adult life and there was this void like how am i like how can i keep that aaf family that you know, bands know when you come through this part of the country that there's these rabid rock fans here. And there's this, even if the bands aren't from Boston, so many bands from out of Boston broke in Boston because of AAF and because of the passion of the fans here. Right. And I was like, growing up a fan of AAF before I ever worked there, I was like, well, where do we all go now? Right. (laughs) We don't have a home anymore. So I just, my motivation in the beginning was just to give us all a place where we could still go and where I could, you know, keep people in touch with the artists they love, but then introduce them to artists that I think they're going to love that are new. Right. And to be able to do that. And so with the podcast, I've been able to interview everybody from, you know, like Dan Murphy from this band, All Good Things, who's just getting ready to release their first record to, you know, Nancy Wilson of the aforementioned heart. And it's like, there's this whole spectrum of people in there, Alice Cooper and, um, you know, Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick. But then I'm interviewing Morgan Rose from Seven Dust and, you know, all of these guys that I've known for years. And it's been great. I'm super happy. What was one of your favorite, who is one of your favorite bands to 
ever interview. On the podcast or ever? Ever. I mean, I always loved talking to Ozzy just because you never know. Like you talk about that whole fly by the seat of your pants thing that we started talking about at the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) There's very few people that give you more of that sensation than talking to Ozzy because you just don't know what he's going to say. Oh, amen. (laughs) But I mean, there... I always prided myself on like trying to do something a little different, a little more fun. So, um, like I had the damage plan guys come in, you know, when Dimebag and Vinny were alive and they were getting ready to release that first damage plan record. And I, I went to the toy store and got all these little, um, battery powered little kid instruments and there's Vinny, like, oh, you know, cool. doing a drum solo on a little kid's drum set and Dimebag Daryl shredding on this Wiggles guitar and, like, just ridiculous <laughs> stuff like that. Joe Satriani came in and gave me a guitar lesson. And I have long Sweet. fingernails. Okay. And he was like, well, your fingernails are going to keep you from being able to play guitar. And I was like, Joe, the fingernails are not what's keeping me from playing guitar, man. I hate to tell you, I could cut them off right now and still not be able to play guitar. Um Steven Tyler came in and I bought, I still have it. It's on the shelf actually right up there behind me. I bought these two first act harmonicas that are like my first harmonica that I like Toys R Us. Okay. Yep. And I opened them in front of him so he could see that a harmonica, that it had never been played because harmonicas are one of those things where it's like, you know, even pre-COVID, like it's pretty intimate. You're sucking and blowing all over the thing. And I asked him to give me a harmonica lesson. And okay. he taught me like the baseline of the, you know, there's great audio of him telling me like suck in and like in, in, out, out, in, in, out, out. And then he took this little kid's harmonica and just slayed a solo over my baseline. And it was oh, one nice. of the craziest things. Cause I was like, I can't believe I'm playing harmonica with Steven Tyler right now. And I have the <laughs> audio and it's like, I always tried to do those kinds of things to like, make it fun for them and try to do something that they had never done before and ask questions that they had never been asked before. Because as you're very well aware, like you do enough interviews after a while, you get asked the same questions over and over. It right, It's not exactly. fun anymore. And so I always, the things that I remember the most were always when we were doing goofy, funny things. Right. Me too. That's, those are always the, the best times when you're just having fun. Like when we were in, uh, at, in the farm or at the farm. Yeah. And I, I was producing seven dust and man, there's some funny stuff that happened up there. I tell you know? that album talking about how songs are attached to memories and stuff. Right. That album for me represents so many good times. So like, here's my perspective. Cause your hold up in the recording studio with seven dust. The studio is Longview Farm, so you're out in the middle of nowhere. All the stores, everything closed at like 7, 8 o'clock at night. It's a horse farm in the middle right. of nowhere. And I'm about a half hour away. And yep. I was on the air till midnight, and I had interns and whatever. And you guys would call me, somebody in the band, somebody would call me every night and give a shopping list to my interns of what you guys needed at the liquor store, if you wanted pizzas, <laughs> what you needed at the grocery store, snacks, cigarettes, like whatever it was, my interns right. would then go out with my credit card, buy all uh-huh. of this stuff, and then I'd get off the air at midnight, drive the half hour to Longview Farms where you guys were 
just getting started at work, basically, because you guys were working all night. And right. I would show up there like, you know, Bobby Fleckman, the hostess with the mostest with the ding dongs and the cigarettes <laughs> and the liquor and the booze. And I would get to sit there and it was a front row seat for me to watch you guys make that record. Right, exactly. Which was fascinating for me. Cheap price to pay, right? Yeah. I mean, they they repaid me for all that. <laughs> I would have gone broke if I bought oh, Seven Dust groceries every night. And then you guys would all get ready to go to bed at like seven in the morning. Yep. And I would go home and go to bed right. and get up and do it all over again the next day. Right, exactly. And I remember there were a few nights when we came in, we traveled that half an hour and we met you at, you know, out somewhere. Because, you know, we needed to get off the farm. We yeah, had, you guys were like you know, 20, 25 minutes from Worcester, which had clubs. Right. And so you guys would come into town and we'd meet up for, at shows just to get out of the house. and. Exactly. Yeah. There were a few of those nights. You know, I remember one night in particular that we got escorted home by the Massachusetts State Police. <laughs> and thank you very much, Carrie, because you, as I, if I remember correctly, you set that all up so that we didn't get busted. Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> so that was some fucking funny times. <laughs> I have always had an incredible relationship with the first responder and military community. And right. it's always been my experience that they're such passionate rock fans. And we were at that show and there's always police details and stuff. And I was like, guys, these guys oh, need sure. to get back. They don't have cars. They're, they're here recording a record and the troopers were like, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. Like, I think they, I think <laughs> the troopers like wanted autographs and stuff. They did. Yeah. And you guys were like, <laughs> whatever. And the guys from seven does were like, can I, can we turn the lights on? Can we blare the sirens? Like, it was hilarious. <laughs> we were just like a bunch of little kids. Yeah. You know, and then we, and we, we did pull up to the farm, and I remember two or three cop cars, and the lights were going. And so, you know, when we got there, Bonnie, the owner, came out and, what's wrong? What happened? What did they do? You know, and, and said one of the officers, oh, it's okay, man. We're just driving them home. <laughs> Everybody's too drunk to talk. Good night. <laughs> Here's we seven dust. And- Here you go. <laughs> exactly. I took. It was uh, hilarious. We went. Did you go to the baseball game with us? I don't think so. We took because you know how big of a Yankees fan Morgan is, and I got tickets to the Red oh, Sox yeah. game, and we got a van, and I drove a bunch of them, and Morgan comes out in all his Yankee shit, and we're sitting in the bleachers, like the cheap seats at Fenway. Seats at Fenway. I'm like, dude, don't wear your Yankee shit to Fenway. It wasn't even a Yankees game. And he was like, I'm wearing this stuff. And I was like, please don't. Like, and he wore, he took the jersey up, but he wore the hat, but he wore it backwards. And he was walking down the bleachers to go underneath the bleachers where the concessions were. And it was his turn to like buy the round of drinks. And this guy up behind us who was like wasted, didn't even know who it was. Didn't know it was Morgan. And just screams down, hey, Yankees fan, get up here so I can fuck you in the ass. And Morgan looked at me like, (laughs) What the fuck? I was like, that's what you get for wearing Yankees gear to Fenway, dude. What are you doing? That's fucking precious. Like, there's just, there's so many. Like, I had never heard of Skunk and Nancy before until Skin came in to sing on that song. And I was like, oh my God, her voice. I had never heard of her before because they were this huge band in Europe, but they weren't big in the States. And I remember hearing her sing licking cream off that record and was like where did her voice come from oh, isn't that beautiful it's like, unbelievable oh, 
And they're still a band. So anybody that's listening to this, if yeah. you don't know who Skunk and Nancy is, just Google it or go listen to Home. That's the girl singing with Lejean on Licking Cream. She hits these notes. It doesn't make any sense. And then Chino's on that record <laughs> because he did yep. he did Bender on that record. And I was there when they were recording that too. So was Ian, Ian Barrett the, exactly. from AAF's TV show. That's right. That's right. And I, I uh, all of those, I mean, a lot of that stuff was written in the studio. So, you know, especially Licking Cream, right? Because I remember sending, uh, you know, her and Lejean down to, down to the, you know, to, to the room down there. Okay, you guys go write this. We're going to work on something else. And, you know, let's see what you come up with. And we only had limited time. And I remember that it was, you know, we were hard pressed to get what we got. But I'm very proud of what we got because, it, it certainly was a great representation of that song. And, and you know, it's one of my favorites both, off the record of their talents. Say again. It's one of my favorites off the record. Me too. Me too. But you know, the opening track just slays me every time though. Yeah. It's just, ah, I know <laughs> that about my music. There's my music right there. Just, you know, something that, that like makes me very, digs deep into my soul and makes me emotional. You know what I mean? And can, and can elicit a, an, an emotional response. That's my music. Well, that, and that's and, a perfect I, example of one of those bands that's not from Boston, but broke out of Boston and we claimed them right. as ours. Right. And they always, to this day, have a home in the Northeast, even though they're the good old Southern boys that they are, you know? Right, exactly. Exactly. So... You mentioned Westwood One earlier in your new gig. Um, so is that uh, are they a satellite thing now, or is they are they terrestrial radio? No. So and- so Westwood One is a is a big player in like radio syndication and um, okay. So they do a lot of work with like the NFL and um, you know they carry a lot of big. Satell- uh, not sa- not satellite in like a Sirius XM satellite way, but like, but carrying big events and and simulcasting and and um, syndicating that kind of content to terrestrial radio stations around the country. And um, Westwood okay. One also supplies a lot of the content for the American Forces Network, which is the TV okay. and radio that the troops hear around the world. And so. To be to be affiliated with a company like that and to be in their kind of arsenal and stable of of DJs, um, I can only imagine what's going to be possible for me in the future. I mean, when they when they came calling um, earlier this year, I was like, oh, my God, like. It's Westwood One, like it's huge. So it's it's been amazing to be part of this team and because they're so huge in the world of broadcasting, I don't know what's going to be possible with my career right. with them, you know, but I'm excited. I mean, it's only been a few months. Hell yeah. And, I would be too. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, it's a great opportunity because they're a global company. Yeah. You know, and, and so now, you know, Mr. Scary goes, goes global. Slowly trying were. to take over the world, Toby, little by little. That, that a girl. I'm proud of you. Little by so, little. I mean, like as a DJ, like, do you, what's with the, what's with the playlist phenomena? 
So you got your Spotify and all these things that are like, all right, now, you know, we have our playlist and that's how these new artists are breaking now, right? They end up on somebody's playlist and so on and so forth. Now, if you, you know, if you roll back time a little bit, you'll know that, you know, a radio station had a quote unquote playlist. Mm -hmm. And if you got on that playlist of a certain station, then, you know, you were going to, you, your, your career would most likely elevate. Right? Yeah. Getting the ad so it, to the playlist on a station was a big deal. Still is a big deal. Right. It, it still is. So how do you, you know, do you see rock radio? Where do you see it going today? I mean, that's the biggest thing. That. That's the biggest thing. Like the, because I was only at AAF up until a very short time ago, AAF was this weird anomaly where we were still all we were making programming decisions in house. Boston is a really weird place where we're very tribal. We're very localized. You know, someone's from Boston because they probably just told you like we're just that way. (laughs) The way that some cities are Chicago's like that. Baltimore's like that. New York is like that. Not all cities are like that. And radio has this ability to be live and local, which is its biggest strength is to be immersed in the community. And so there would be things that we would play on AAF that other radio stations, either either within our own company or other rock stations around the country wouldn't have any success with. But for us, it was a huge hit. And so we would make all of those programming decisions locally about what songs and what artists we were going to play. And because I was the assistant program director and on the air, I was actually part of the programming team that helped to make those decisions. And so it's kind of like we're these gatekeepers and we would sit in meetings and we would look at things like artist streams and social media presence. And, you know, part of the, the job that I loved was I would go to shows and I would get there early to watch the opening act. And I would see, you know, wait, this band is the opener, but 50 people showed up wearing their shirts and right. 200 more bought their shirt after the show and everybody knew the words to the song, but their songs aren't on the radio. Like to try and find these ground swells and these diamonds in the rough and to work with the record companies to get the bands in the studio and set up interviews and do contests and flyaway trips to go see them. And that was all part of my job too. And You know, back in the old days of radio, when they were still queuing up albums in the studio, sometimes, like, there was no format. You could listen to, like, one of those AM stations and hear the widest array of music because it was, like, whatever Wolfman Jack felt like playing on the air that night or whatever. And now that stations are so much more structured in their format, let's say, that it's like, all right, well, we're in a rock station versus a top 40 station versus an alternative station versus whatever that like, okay, this is, this is what we do now. This is, this is what we play. And for a while it got really fragmented. I think rock to a certain extent, those walls are starting to come back down when you see artists like a machine gun Kelly with some of this pop punk stuff that's blurring lines again. And people are trying to figure things out for a while, like alternative music they didn't play artists that had guitars in them and they became almost these pop stations again. And it was like, well, how can you be an alt rock station and not play (laughs) the black keys? What what, there's too much guitar in the black. And, and so we were always trying to figure out like what the, what our audience expected from us. 
but then always trying okay. to challenge them a little bit and bring them something that stretched the boundary a little bit, whether it be a band like The Who, not Roger Daltrey Who, but The Who, the Mongolian dudes. H, okay. It's H-U. Like, they're Mongolian yeah. throat singers that are playing traditional Mongolian instruments, but they play them in heavy metal songs. Or like Apocalyptica Sweet. that's playing heavy metal on cellos or... right. You know, stuff like that. And it's like, you always want to kind of take chances. I mean, you know, we would play Lacuna Coil, but they were singing in Italian or um, right, exactly. playing bands like Nonpoint and Puya or P.O.D. or singing in Spanish. Or it's like we would always right. try to take a flyer. Sometimes it wouldn't work. Sometimes it would. Um, but you also can get to the point where you're too safe, which I think a lot of stations, these programming decisions are now getting made at the corporate level and it's a right. dictate to all of their stations. And so there's okay. a little bit of like losing the fly by the seat of your pants kind of thing. Right. And depending on what happens right now, the big radio companies are all investing in podcasting in a major way. Depending right. on what happens, because these signals, the, the frequencies from the FCC are expensive and they're hard to get. And I wonder if we're going to get to the point where the big media companies start selling off these terrestrial signals and they start to be privately owned again. And if that happens, I think we're going to see a renaissance of the local radio station that's live in your town that's immersed in the community again, because it's possible that these big companies are going to start selling off these little small market or media market stations to independent companies because they're going to invest their money in technology streaming. Right. I, I think that could be where radio goes, where if it does that, I think radio could have a full resurgence because there's so many and people have been saying rock is dead for fucking 30 years. And people have been saying that radio is a dead medium. And I am not of that opinion because radio holds a place that streaming and podcasts and all these other things don't, which is it's immediate and it's ingrained in the community. Exactly. And it serves a purpose for that. It's just that I think maybe it needs to go through its own kind of revolution again and, it needs to change a little bit, but I just am such a huge believer because for so long I was such a huge proud part of the community that like the tr we're very tribal. Humans are tribal and AAF, yeah, like sure. you wore those call letters. It said something about you. You were part of something. Right. Exactly. I think radio still has that ability. I do too. And explained like that, I, I'm excited actually that you know that that's a possibility it's because, it's possible you know, i mean who knows you know i think yeah. i think we're in unprecedented times right now and i don't think when you and i started our careers we could have foreseen what the internet was going to do to change i mean look my first internship was at a recording studio okay i okay. thought and you'll laugh at this because i grew up in the 80s <laughs> i wanted to be the you I wanted to be okay. the person behind the giant console in the Motley Crue video that knew what all the knobs did. All right, okay. And I thought it was going to be so glamorous. And I uh, thought it was just going to be a Motley Crue video all the time. And I did an internship 
Yeah, I know you're laughing because you didn't realize I was an idiot. And I did an internship my freshman year of college at a recording studio around the corner from AAF, which is how I ended up getting my internship there. And I spent a summer recording a 27-piece mariachi band and setting up microphones for maracas. There you go. And that was most (laughs) definitely not a Motley Crue video. No, no. (laughs) And I was like... I don't think I care what those knobs do. This kind of sucks. Nothing against mariachi music, which I enjoy. It was just it's not the Motley Crue. The microphones. Yeah, it was just not the Motley <laughs> Crue video I had in my head. Like it's not. Right, right. It wasn't. It wasn't. You know, and I cleaned the heads. That was my job as the intern: is that I would take the Q-tips with the denatured alcohol, and I would clean yep. the heads and the grease pencil with the razor and all of that. And that was something I was going to ask you, like, with the way technology is now, I am very fortunate that I learned all of the fundamentals the old way. Do you feel that way, too? Oh, completely. And I'm really proud that I went through the whole analog thing when I did. And I was a maintenance engineer as well. So I got to learn how to fix all the gear. Um as well as operate all the gear. And so I was never, I'd never be in a tight spot with a client. And so, you know, building studios and learning to fix the gear and align the tape machines and clean the heads and, you know, all that stuff and edit, like that was a a whole big thing. And then when Pro Tools came along, it was, you know, like, what is this shit? You know, and I was mad at it for a long time because it just wasn't my analog tape machine. It didn't sound the same. It's junk. And then, you know, CDs came out and all this stuff happened. I was like, wow, okay, well, we're getting into this digital age. You know, what should I do to keep, make sure that I still have a career in music because I love music so much. And so I was learn all the technical shit that I can. And, you know, you can't see it, but I'm staring at like a big wall of gear in front of me right here. And that I still use to this day, um, you know, to record and produce mix bands. And, and it's, you know, without it, I'm, I'm, I'm just me, but you know, it, it's just, it's funny how like that whole education, um, you know, set me up for a better education in digital. Cause then I had to learn how to type because, you know, when I was going to high school, you know, I skipped typing class because what am I going to do with typing? You know, we didn't have computers then. I didn't ever think I would be an assistant or a secretary. So, you know, that those was the were the only people that typed for secretaries right, back exactly. then. Right. So like I didn't I wasn't going to use that. I wasn't going to be a secretary. I was either going to be a race car driver, a race mechanic or something else. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew there was something out there. But here I am. Um, So (laughs) to answer the question, I think it was, you know, it's it was good that I got all into the technical side of music um, because now, you know, being I have lots of computers and this and that, you know, tons of Pro Tools programs and you know, all different kind of stuff that I can use to create, you know, this podcast, a video edit and, you know, audio edit it and all that kind of stuff. And it came in really handy, you know, especially like, uh, for instance, recording um, or editing, recording and editing uh, Metallica's and Justice for All. Like, you know, there were literally a shit ton of edits. You know, I don't know if anybody ever counted them, but, you know, it's it went when the tape goes by and it's rewinding and it goes, that's all the edits going by with with the tape right and it's just you know because mostly it's silent when it when it rewinds but all those edits you know and then their songs are really long so it got to be this whole you know this this whole learning dynamic of 
you know, where do you cut the tape? How do you cut the tape? You know, don't forget to, um, you know, demagnetize the razor blades before you do it or else you'll wipe out, you know, maybe a second on each side of that cut. And that to me was like, oh no, what am I going to do? You know? And so I would go and I would degauss like a whole box of razor blades, you know, and half of them would be used for cocaine. The other half would be used for cutting tape, you know? <laughs> so, you know, but Hey, dad, I never did that. I, all the artists did it. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> it's the music business. You knew it was around. It, oh God. Yes. So yeah, I mean, I, I've, I feel very fortunate that I got my, my start when I did. And because of, you know, all the people that I learned from, um, you know, just honed that craft right into the digital era. And I still, to this day, I think the best sounding material is stuff that's, you know, like drums and bass are recorded in, on a tape machine and then transferred into a digital medium and then everything else captured in that digital medium. Uh, because, you know, it, when you when you run the tape back and forth over the heads, you lose the top end, right? Whether it's way, way, way top or whether it's like 5K, 6K, you know, in that area, which is really integral to a guitar sound for, you know, when, you, when the pick hits the string, it actually makes a percussive, right? So that sound is about five or six K. If you don't have that, you know, in your sound preserved properly, then you're going to lose that attack on the guitar, right? For instance. And so a digital recording will preserve that perfectly. An analog recording, yes, it will give it that thickness and fatness that you want. But at the same time, if, if it's run back and forth over the heads, you know, 100, 200, whatever, how many times it takes to get finish the song, you're going to lose all that attack that you worked for. And then when you go to mix it, you have to add tons of that attack back, which just adds noise because you're adding the upper frequencies, which is just noise. You've so. worked on some albums with some artists that doing what I do are, are defining moments. So can I ask you about some specific artists and some specific stuff? And can you give me some quick stories or memories of, of working on those. You, the first one you you've already kind of touched sure. on cause you brought it up is working on injustice for all, which the black album celebrating its 30th anniversary recently, the black album is a moment in, in all music, but exactly. And justice for all and timing it with MTV with one, that was an important moment in music too. When you were working Absolutely. on that, did you know what was going on at the time? Or partially. Or um, like have an idea of what could possibly come from what you were working on? Well, we knew that one was going to be um, the very first video that Metallica ever did. So we, we knew that was going to happen. Um, we didn't know that it would turn out like it did. James had it all in his head at the time. Um, and he and I had, you know, lengthy conversations about you know, what is this song about? And, you know, so on and so forth. Um, and he explained to me where it all came from and, you know, where it was all going. Um, and I had no idea, you know, from that point forward, where that would go. You know what I mean? Because I was just, you know, head down, get that drum tape, get that, you know, get that good guitar solo, record that bass, do this, do that, you know, and, it was more of a task thing. And then, you know, all of a sudden we were finished and it went to Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero to be mixed. And that was the last I saw of it until it came out. <laughs> um, then there was this 
line in the sand when grunge showed up. And you've worked, <laughs> I mean, seriously, like there are just moments in rock and roll that just change everything. And, you know, right. the 30th anniversary of things like Nevermind and Pearl Jam 10 and Bad Motorfinger, like we're hitting, the, we're, we're celebrating that 30 year mark right now where, where heavy metal in the eighties kind of smashed into this grunge of the nineties. And that was such right. a, like that was my freshman year of college. So for me, it was incredibly influential. And I looked at bands like Alice in Chains as being this bridge between heavy metal and grunge because it was so fucking heavy. Right, exactly. And you worked on Jar of Flies, the unplugged record, the dog record. Like, I never got to meet Lane Staley. I, I've talked to Jerry Cantrell. I've... I've I've met the rest of the band, but I, I, I never got, what was it like in the studio working in a time where music was changing so much with one of the bands that was ushering in the change? Uh, the only word that comes to mind is amazing. Um, but at the time, that, that wasn't a thing. You know what I mean? I wasn't thinking about things like that. I wasn't thinking about, hey, I'm working with this cool band that's, gonna be this eventually no it was more like you know my first two songs with alice uh were a, a little bitter and what the hell have i for the last action hero soundtrack um and i was you know hired as the engineer and you know nick terzo uh was the uh, a and r guy at, at columbia records at the time where alice was signed to and i you know i had heard alice and i was like i want that band i want that whatever it takes i want that band and so, you know, I just, I found out who, who repped them. I, I, I went after him. I had my managers go after him. I was like, come on, you know, I, I just want to record some stuff with him. Just, I, I know it'll be good. I know from the bottom of my heart, it'll be good. Let's, let's try this. So they, they hired me to do those two songs. Um, it was difficult because the movie soundtrack guy at the time, rest is God rest his soul. He's not with us anymore. Um, but he and his engineer team were a bit of a pain in the butt um, as, you know, the guy, I remember the engineer telling me, you know, the sound, the, this snare drum used to hit you right here like this. Like, Dude, if it hits me like there, right there, I'm going to have a headache and I'm just going to turn off the song. So let's have it be a little bit more gentle and, but still cracking, you know? And he's like, well, I don't know what that means, but okay. <laughs> he goes, you record it however you want. When we mix it, I'll fix it. Okay, whatever you want. So I got along great with the band. You know, long story short, we we, we did that. They took it and mixed it. Uh, I think Andy Wallace mixed them. Um, and then it came time to do, um, you know, the next the Jar Flies was next, right? And so they were on tour with Lollapalooza, and they called, Jerry called me from uh, Australia, which is the last stop. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. Well, he said, like, do you want to go do an EP? Like, hell yeah, dude, with you guys? Hell yeah, let's go. I met them in Seattle. And uh, 10 days, I, we you know, booked a studio for 10 days. They came in, they had no songs. And Jerry just wanted to jam. And so for 10 days, we jammed. And at the end of it, we came out with Jar of Flies. So that was written, days. recorded, and done all in 10 days? Written, recorded, produced, arranged, and mixed in 10 days. Wow. <laughs> now, could that be done again? 
like I haven't been able to do it again. So the answer is maybe could, you know, Alice do it again? Well, they haven't. So maybe they could, maybe they can't, but it was a special moment in our lives where, that is preserved forever. And we had the, the attitude in the, in the room between Jerry and myself and the band was that if it comes out, it comes out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. There wasn't any, you know, oh my God, we have to make this amazing because we have to be amazing. It wasn't any of that. It was more of, you know, just let's rock and roll and see what happens. So that was the attitude that, that we attacked all of their stuff with, with me. And then another line happened later in the nineties <laughs> and you work on this album called follow the leader. <laughs> yes. And corn that, that, that was 98, right? Yes. That's the year I started on the radio. As a DJ, Boom. I had been at okay. AAF for seven years before that, but started on the air that year. And just like with every other style of music, right, that the 80s was cool, then grunge happened. And I just talked to D. Snyder on my podcast about this. He was like, I woke up one day and I was told by the government, you know, I got a registered letter that was like, you're not cool anymore and nobody wants to hear your music anymore. Like, that it was a light switch. Same thing happened with the Bee Gees, you know, that the disco just one right. day, all of a sudden it was gone. And so there, people look back on, the, you know, for a while the hair metal was a joke and then people realize, okay, there's a lot of good music that came out of that era. Then there were, sure. then every band that was a grunge band got signed and there was a lot of grunge that wasn't great, but the good stuff remains. The exactly. new metal era, I think in a lot of ways, people have made fun of to a certain point, but kind of understand like, I love that music because when, you know, you're talking about Chino from the Deftones on the Seven Dust record or, or Seven right. Dust or Corn or Limp Bizkit or, you know, Tool in that era, like, AAF was so ingrained with the, all of this music and follow the leader was such a huge record at that time. You're, you keep laughing when I bring it up. Why do you keep laughing? What, what are you laughing at? Oh, just, you know, that, that record was another one that was made with, well, if it happens, it happens. But you know, the, that was just our attitude in the studio. I like to keep it that way when we're in the studio because I've had too many artists. Man, this is the best thing ever. It's going to be number one. It's going to win us Grammys. It's going to win us Emmys. It's going to win us all this shit. Guess what happened? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah. No. So when people start getting a little bit, you know, boisterous about things like that, I kind of just, you know, all right, guys, let's keep that chatter out of the studio because we don't need it. We need to concentrate on what's going on here. And, you know, I, I tell the story of, of Jar of Flies. I tell the story of Follow the Leader because those records were made under the guise of, you know, hey, let's just have fun and make a kick-ass record and something that we'll all be proud of and that'll be the end of that. And so that's what we do. And I'm sorry I keep laughing, but it's like, you know, the corn the, the thing, you know, I just remember 18 weeks of craziness and just having to try and hold it all together. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think it came out amazing. And I did some great sound experiments, which are on the record, which are, you know, they're not supposed to work musically, but I made them work somehow, some way we all like, you know, I had the, the patience of the guitar players, which was amazing. And, you know, we just 
like for instance on got the life like the intro is a a guitar you know through a fan like literally i put a a uh what do you call it a little tiny cigarette amp speaker behind a uh, a regular you know fan right and i mic'd it out here in two stereo microphones because every kid has gone know, up behind a fan and been like, and the fans uh, going, da, 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 right. da, 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 da. exactly. And so I put it on really slow, as slow as it would go, and I just had him play the intro, and that is what you hear on there. And it's like, who would have do? Who would have done that? They would have just like got a plug in, and you know, well, I'm going to go to the Leslie setting or the whatever, and boom. I I just like to create it because that's what I was taught back in the day. You know what I mean? If, if, if your microphone is in the right place, you capture the right sound. That's, that's where the, you know, the people that I grew up with, that's how we recorded. They didn't want to use EQ. They didn't want to use a plugin. They didn't have a plugin to use. They didn't want to use outboard gear. They didn't want to use anything but their microphone to capture that sound. And that was the end of it. So purists basically. And so I was, you know, when, when I think about all those records and, you know, the defining moments and things, it's, it's the purity that I kind of snuck into uh, uh, the modern era, which I, which I kind of like. I'm not somebody that likes to talk a lot of shit. I mean, listen, I like to talk a lot of shit, but, but, <laughs> but I, but I find like, as people ask me all the time, well, who's the biggest asshole you ever met? And it's like, that's just, I would rather hear about the stories of who was coolest in, You've worked with yeah. everybody from Korn, Metallica, Alice in Chains, Ozzy, Kiss. You worked with one of my favorite bands of all time, Queensryche, which, you know, the sun rises and sets on Jeff Tate's voice as far as I'm concerned. You've worked with Corey Amen. Taylor. You've worked with Slayer. Can you give me an example or two of people that you were shocked by their raw talent and and taken aback by moments of genius in the studio like like, who do you look at musically and just go, like, that floors me? Or is there somebody that, because you, you've been in those rooms with those, like, watching and taking part in these bands, writing these records. I, I have. And, you know, in some cases, I was an integral part of having, getting their creativity to come out. Um, I would go, I'll start with Lars Ulrich, right? floored by the way he recorded his drums back then i don't know if he still records them that way um, but you know he was taught that the harder you hit the drums the better it sounds so we know that to be false but at the same time that's the, that's what he was taught so you know if you look at a song like and justice for all which is nine minutes long it's really really hard he's got great upper body strength no doubt about it but you know to stay perfectly on point the whole time it was an impossibility. So we would, you know, we would record as far as we could, fall off the click or whatever, and we'd have to edit, right? But that whole process was something that I was floored by, right? And his, you know, his willingness to just keep doing this. I, I, I'm getting this, and this is it. And then you see him, you know, live, and he's like, okay, you're rocking that shit out of that song. That's awesome. So, you know, just the, the creativity and how he you know, saw the song coming together, that, that floored me. Um, next one, I guess, would be Jerry Cantrell. Amazing songwriter, amazing uh, orchestrator. Lane would be in the same category, just floored by 
the things that would come out of his mouth, both speaking and musically, like, you know, just sitting there with jar of flies. Okay. Here's what we would do is, you know, the boys would create a track on the studio floor, send it upstairs to lane via cassette or whatever means we had. Um, and he would, you know, he'd have an instrumental and then he'd write the lyric, uh, and or melody. And so then he'd come downstairs with like a verse and a chorus and go, what do you guys think of this? And if it was cool, we'd say, keep on going. If it wasn't, we'd go and go back upstairs and try again. Well, they were all cool. We, we never said no um, because they just were all like amazing. So, and Jerry's the same way with, you know, with his guitar playing. A lot of that stuff that I recorded, I did his solo record, The Boggy Depot as well. Um, and he's an amazing musician. Just the, the things that he hears in his head. Uh, man. You mentioned Jeff Tate, amazing singer. I loved working with that band. You know, Chris DeGarmo and I are still good friends. Um, it's just, you know, you run across these guys who, you know, I've been in a lot of those situations where my jaw just goes, what? <laughs> huh? Morgan Rose playing drums at Longview Farm. Freaked me out. I couldn't watch him. It's you know, so... He does all of his theatrics listening to Morgan play drums is only half the story because when you watch Morgan play drums, he, his body moves in a way. If you've never seen seven dust live where your brain says, Oh, he's going to miss it. He's going to miss a drum beat because his body's doing something completely out of whack. And then at the very last second, he hits exactly what he was supposed to, but he's looking over there and you're like, and he's screaming with his Janet ja- I always call it his Janet Jackson microphone, which he hates. But like, right, right. but it doesn't make any sense when you watch him play. It's so captivating, but it's almost like you're watching a train wreck because it's like, it doesn't make any sense in your head until you see it. Right. And then you're just like, oh, then it makes all the sense. Exactly. And that's what freaked me out was all of his movements, but it's all in his brain. They're all choreographed, right? And that's what he's doing a dance. He's not playing the drums. He's dancing with the drums. And to me, that I had never seen anything like that before, except on stage, right? It's like, oh, cool. He's putting on a little show with, ooh, flip the stick and, ooh, twirl around. And then I asked him to play with, can you not do that? And he, and he tried, and he couldn't play. Wow. <laughs> I was like, damn, dude. Okay, well, you go back to what you do. I'll go back to the, the control room, and I won't look. I'll just listen. I, goes, I, I'm trying to imagine watching Morgan play drums normal. He tried. It, <laughs> it didn't work out too well. <laughs> but those are, you know, those are three or four of, of, of the people that I can think of right away. Um, there's many, many more. There's a Michael McDonald. There's, it just, the list goes on that, you know, people that have walked in the studio, either as I was an assistant engineer or an engineer or producer that you know just i've i've had the 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 luck i don't know if it's luck but you know but i've had i've been in the right place at the right time a bunch of times and you know gotten to work with some of the best of the best and i'm very very grateful for that and i'll keep doing that because i love making music i love being around it and i have such a huge appreciation for it i just don't have the brain for it like, like a lot of the, the artists I ask, and I'll ask you the same thing, because they say that music is the same part of the brain as language and math. Are you 
are you that way? Are you good at math? Can you speak other languages? Do you believe that? I can't speak other languages. I've tried. Um, maybe I smoke too much weed, but I don't remember <laughs> stuff like I used to. <laughs> um, so the language thing is out, but I am good at math. I know how to do math really well. Um, that's what, you know, all the tomes is predicated on is frequencies. So I, I've had to, you know, invent little formulas that would help me get to, you know, the end of my problem uh, with that kind of stuff. And so that was, you know, that that all came about because of math. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, math and music are just one and the same as far as I'm concerned. You know, you, if you can count to four, you can probably play some music. So I, I suck at both. I can count to four, yeah. but. The clarinet and the marching band was as far as I went. The only person that's ever been (laughs) impressed about my clarinet playing was Dean DeLeo from Stone Temple Pilots when I talked to him. And I told him I was in the marching band and he was like, clarinet, that's a reed instrument. And he started getting all nerdy. And I was like, dude, I sucked. That's why I don't do it anymore. And it's a poor choice when you you love heavy metal. There's no heavy metal clarinet. Nope, nope. Not not yet, yet. unless you figure it out. Well, we can put a, you know, we can put some kind of pickup in it and, and blow it through a Marshall amp and, you know, it might have this crazy sound, which might be pretty cool. Well, if you yeah. ever have the inkling to try a heavy metal clarinet, you call me. I think I still have it in the attic somewhere. Okay, I will. I will. Because I don't have mine. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you one more question. Yeah, go for it. And that is, um, okay, so we were talking about radio earlier, right? And we were talking about you know, you were talking about genres of music um, and how certain stations play, you know, it's, they're, they're allocated, you know, the alt station, you're a rock station, you're a country yeah, they're station, formats. et cetera, et cetera, right? They're format. Okay. So I guess my question goes back to, and it'll go back to before we were both born, like why, if you have an answer, I don't know, but why did, why is radio so genre specific and, and why do we now have like 600 different genres on Spotify or whatever your digital platform is of, you know, alt, alt with a bass, alt without a bass, um, you know, New all alt, classic things. alt. Right. It's like, it's a stupid, like for me personally, it's stupid because I have two, there's two genres of music for me, good and bad. Other than that, it's not. It just doesn't, I don't care that if it's country or what makes it a country song. Somebody has, has, has a twang and they played a slide guitar. But I can think of lots of rock musicians who have a twang and play guitar that you would never call their shit country. Like, so I'm confused. I don't. So can you please help me sort all that out? I can try to help <laughs> you sort it out to the best of my ability, but I, it predates me. But here are some theories of mine. So. I think back in the day, there weren't that many artists and touring wasn't what it is. So I think back in the day, if a tour was going out and you could get on it, there was a lot more cross-pollinization of what we would consider different genres of music now. But back then, they weren't all that different to people's heads. Then I think, so I think as touring grew... You had two, three, four bands that got put together as a package that that started to become of the same ilk. So I think touring kind of helped develop formats and genres a little bit. I think some of it was done at the labels with marketing that 
you know, right. anytime you're going to try and market something and sell something, then you, you got to put a label on it and you got to kind of categorize it a little bit. I know for myself okay. in the eighties growing up, the music became part of who you were inside, but also who you were that you presented to other people as part of your identity. Like I remember in high school, there being a very big shift between the people that liked the cure in Duran Duran, the people that liked U2 in in excess, the people that liked Bon Jovi and Skid Row and the people that liked Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Okay. And I loved Bon Jovi and Skid Row, but I also loved the Judas Priest Iron Maiden. And I could also appreciate the Duran Duran Cure, but I had no okay. love at that time in high school for the NXS U2 stuff. And that, okay. that like defined, like those were the people you hung out with. And I went to concerts with my friends and, and you wore the jacket with the bands you liked on your vest. And so then I think right. you went to, okay, well, you've got three rock stations that you can choose from. So which one do you listen to? Well, I like the one that plays Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Bon Jovi and Skid Row and whatever, but I don't like the one that plays U2. And I don't like the one that plays. And so I think the 80s outside of music was about becoming an individual and figuring out who you were. And it was also a very empowering time for women. So I think... And rock and roll in a lot of ways in the 80s was being driven by women, that it was either women trying to find their own voice or women had a specific role in heavy metal in the videos too. So I think it was this weird. And then I think when the 90s hit, the early 90s, grunge kind of had to find a place. And and because it was different, so different from what was mainstream, that it, that it was, it had to be alternative to something. And so right. then okay. all of a sudden that U2 in excess station, like I think those formats kind of grew out of touring and business and marketing and the labels, because look at what happened in the eighties. Like every band in LA in the eighties that ever played a gig for Molly crew got a record deal. Every band that ever opened up for Soundgarden in Seattle got a record deal. And so the labels would go, oh, well, they're a band just like this. So they're, so what is that? Well, that's grunge. And so that's a grunge band and a grunge has a specific place. And I think the internet is having, for as fragmented and as myopically focused as formats are now, I feel right. like Spotify and I think to a certain extent iTunes in the beginning you know, you could always, like, you grab somebody's phone, right? But when the music was actually on their phone... And you'd find stuff that you'd be like, what is this doing in your phone? Why do you have this in there? Because people's (laughs) musical tastes were a lot more varied than you gave them credit for. But music became tribal, man, especially in like heavy metal. Like those early Metallica fans. Oh, yeah. I had a boyfriend in high school and like I liked like the Bon Jovi, like the hair stuff a little more. They were all cute. And I was a girl, like whatever. But the Metallica fans, that, that. That said something. You were part of something. 
Right. And you wanted to be around other people that appreciated it. You wanted to listen to a radio station that that's where you were going to hear it and you were going to go to a show and see other bands and be around other people. So I think we kind of did it to ourselves too, in a way. I gotcha. Like I took pride in like wearing those fucking concert shirts to school. Like it said something with with my giant hair back then. (laughs) That said a lot too. (laughs) No, it said something. But I think now, like, especially, you know, when you go back, like I remember being in my freshman and sophomore year of high school and that's early 90s, right? So that's when all of this shift was taking place. And I could always okay. tell based on what guys looked like. If I would say, they would say, oh, I like rock music too. And I'd say, oh, you're, you like Van Halen, right? And they're like, yeah. But they were Sammy Hagar Van Halen fans. Because uh, okay. you could tell by looking at them that they were Sammy Hagar Van Halen fans. All right. As opposed to the David Lee <laughs> Roth purists. Like, it. It, it's kind of snobby in a way, but I think back then music, you didn't have everything else that we have now. Right. So music was a way that you expressed yourself and defined yourself and found your tribe of like-minded people. And so it's like, you okay. know, go and look at the, the, the videos. Like we all looked the same. We all dressed the same. And so I think they found a way to monetize that. And I think that's what kind of corrupted it too, is they were like, well, then we're going to start marketing to those people. And then we we need a radio station that's going to generate the target demographic of those people. And then, okay. And then it just, in every format, it just, you know, outlaw country versus mainstream country versus country pop versus, you know, you could be a Johnny Cash you. fan and a Shania Twain fan, but at the time when Shania hit, a lot of the Johnny Cash fans were like, that's not country, Shania. Right, exactly, because Mutt Lang produced it. Yeah. Right? Who produced all you the know, big he, rock records, so it was like... He produced tons of big rock records. Yeah, good but ones, you know too. His big, you know what his biggest selling record is? His biggest record ever? Hold on. Is it a rock record? Oh, yeah. Uh... Hysteria? No. No, no. no. It would be uh, ACDC back in black. Shit. You know what? I knew that because I literally was just talking (laughs) about that on the air the other day. Because I was was talking about bands like Van Halen, Alice in Chains, ACDC that have been forced to have to reinvent themselves. Stone Temple Pilots. And it's it's harder than others. And ACDC violated all of the rules when it came to back in black. Absolutely. How do you change singers and come out bigger? Like Van Halen was big and they were different with Sammy, but, and ACDC was big, but Back in Black is like a whole other thing. Oh yeah. It's crazy, right? But, you know, I think the music community accepted that because it rocked, that record just rocked so And it's, it's so simple yet so perfect. Yeah. You know, I I don't know. I, I just, I just love that record. And, you know, Mutt was the perfect person to do it. Well, that he, leads to he a, a question. minimalist idea. That what? Go ahead. He, had, he's more, he was more of a minimal, minimalist for that record for some reason. And, I, and I, I haven't been able to ask him why yet, but I will. Um, <laughs> versus, you know, all the Def Leppard stuff, which is, you know, five million tracks of everything. You know. Especially well Hysteria. That it's just. Oh, yeah. 
so much. Yeah. Um, I asked this question of the artists that I have on my podcast all the time, and I know your answer is going to be great. From a songwriter's okay. perspective, I don't care about the uh-huh. genre. I don't care about the artist. It doesn't matter to me. Can okay. you give me an example or two of what you think is perfect songwriting and tell me why, like break the song down. Like, I don't care how poppy it is. I don't, but, but from a songwriter's perspective, why a song is so brilliant and break down why? Wow. That's a hard one. I know. Um, that's why I love that question. Yeah. That, that one gets silenced for a second. Um, that's an interesting question because there's so many good songs. Um, but it's not just because you like it, though. There's a difference. Like, you could ask somebody what's your favorite song. But well, but of go, the craft uh, of songwriting, it's a different question. So, right, exactly. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my answer all the way back to the mid-60s with the Beatles. Okay, some of the best songwriting, I think, that has happened in, in our lives we're, we're, we're from the Beatles. Um, you know, some of the biggest selling ha- singles in history were from the Beatles. Right. So I think that those songs, a bunch of those songs, you know, how, how organically they were crafted were some of the best songwriting around when they started getting into the later stuff toward the end of their, you know, toward the end of the Beatles, it kind of got a little weird with Sergeant, not Sergeant Peppers, but um, you know, like just, they got into the whole psychedelic age, which kind of bred a different kind of songwriting. But I think technically, so, you know, I can go to Miles Davis. I can go, you know, off the deep end with some classical stuff over here, but I can also, you know, get to like a Metallica and why their songwriting is so brilliant and why it appeals to you. Um, you know, cause I, I've, I've kind of studied this stuff because I had to, right. Um, you know, like what, how is, what is a song what is, what makes a great song? And it's something that is melody driven. It's something that's riff driven, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and which is riff is just melody and instruments is all it is. Right. And so, and it's, it's, you know, melody driven obviously by a vocal. Now, if you don't have a vocal, then you usually have some kind of lead instrument. You know, if we're talking classical, it's usually going to be a violin or something like that, um, that, you know, drives, drives the whole song, drives the whole, as they call them, pieces. Um, and, you know, those, those are considered songs as well, I think. Then there's, you know, the way that, say, Metallica writes, for instance, and they, they might have a chorus, a verse that goes on and on and on, a short chorus, and then another verse that goes on and on and on. And, but they might have four different riffs in that verse, right? That, that change up time signature, that change here, that change there, that change for the sake of emotion, right? And that's, that's where I think that Metallica, not necessarily the black record, because that's pretty much, you know, to my ear, pretty standard songwriting, as a standard meaning verse, chorus, verse, chorus, et cetera, uh, bridge, and then chorus out, and you're done. And so it's a commercial, that's a commercial way of, of writing. And that's fine. It, that's how pop music is done. But, you know, songs that, that come from other artists like Alice in Chains and Metallica, you know, guys that aren't, they don't care about form. They don't care that, you know, it starts off with a chorus instead of an intro. 
They don't care. They just want what the emotion of the song is supposed to bring. And whatever they happen to be playing right then on the guitar, the piano, the whatever, that's what it needs to be. That's what's supposed to be there. And I think that it's really important to know that, you know, once once you get a vibe on a song and you have an idea of a lyric and a melody that you got to keep going with that, like just keep it going, keep it going, refine it and keep it going. Don't lose what that that feeling that you're writing about, because that is the essence of a good song is the story and the emotion behind it. And you can, you know, you can technically put it together however you want. Make sure you don't, don't lose that part. So what are, what, what's a song that you wish you wrote? Like, I'm going to put a gun <laughs> to your head. Give me an example of a song that you're like that right there. God, that's, that's brilliant. That's, that's it right there. Okay, so I'm going to go with uh, Money by Pink Floyd. Wish I wrote that one. <laughs> That's brilliant, right? So brilliant. Like the cash register in the beginning and telling the whole story and, and then the big girl voice at the end and like, holy smoke. That whole record is like, you know, Dark Side of the Moon is just is crazy. So uh, that's one I wish I wrote. Um, how about, uh, I'm going to go with uh, Thriller from Michael Jackson. I wish I wrote that song. See, now we're talking about two way different styles of songwriting, right? Yeah, but still but good both... songwriting is good songwriting, though. That's right. And and one thing I tell my my clients all the time is that, you know, they're asking me, do, do you like this song? Do you like that song? Do you like this song? It, it's not about it, It's not about the musicians. It's not about the bands. It's about the songs. Because... In my opinion, good songs will always sell music, period. No matter who does them, no matter how old you are, no matter if you're from a different planet, it doesn't matter. If you come across with a great song that we can all sing along to, first of all, and dance to, second of all, then, or it evokes an emotion like you just, I just have to stop and cry because that song is so sad. You know, that, that too is, is something that you're going to, you know, you're going to like that song for is that emotional pull. Right. And so when you have all of those song, songs like that, you have a piece of gold. Don't lose it. <laughs> I knew your answer to that question would be good. I love that question oh. because songwriters come at it from such different kind of perspectives. And I yeah. love people's answers to it. Right. That's a great question. I'm going to have to don't put you, that in my arsenal. Don't, don't you mind. poach my question. That's mine. Damn it. <laughs> And it's a good one. Yes. <laughs> it's actually a really good one. Well, thank you. Thank me for what? Everything. Everything and everything. Thank you for being my friend. <laughs> Travel down the road and back again. And now that's a good song too. See? <laughs> yeah. That, it's a TV theme. Well, that's what I was going to say. That's the trick. You know, you wrote a good song when it gets sync picked up with a sync license and continues to pay you and you don't even have to get out of bed. Exactly. Exactly. That's a brilliant song. That's how you, that's how you know you're like, okay, I, that's, that's, that's a good one. Oh yeah. For yeah. sure. I mean, you know, I just, like I said, I, I interviewed my friend Frankie Sullivan. I of the tiger was, was the, obviously their biggest song ever. Um, and that song, you know, again, you know, there's there's something that's not a little, not exactly formulaic, and you know, but boom, 
Did they write that for the movie? No. Okay. It was was written and then Sly liked it and they put it in the movie. They actually used a demo of it. And there's just so much, you know, I learned there's so much, uh, as Frank said, bullshit about, about that song that, you know, that I got him to tell a bit of the truth. So, um, you know, in his roundabout way, you'll learn all about it when, when you watch my podcast of Frankie Sullivan, episode one, <laughs> we'll cover that one. So <laughs> you, so what made you two. wanted to get, what made you want to like start this thing? So I've started the podcast, my right stuff for, you know, to put out my bands. Like, you know, I was, I'm having a hard time with getting bands out to, you know, to be heard. Right. And so, you know, you can, I produce, you know, I have four or five different bands. I have a label that I have that, you know, we sign bands. It's Brian, the man you met earlier and myself. Um, And, you know, we write music and then we kind of file, find, you know, people to sing it or whatever, or I'll find a band, I'll produce them. And I wanted an avenue of, of marketing and a way to, to market the bands, a way to find out more about bands, to find out more about everybody out there and give everyone a platform to, you know, to get up and, and speak your piece. Um, and, you know, like uh, earlier on my podcast, I, have, I also do live performances. Right. So, you know, I'll I'll interview them for half an hour and then we'll have a live performance of, you know, three or four or five songs. Um, That to me is pretty cool. Right. Well, you can do that because it's their music and it's your label. Whereas for me, I can't just put music on my podcast, which people ask me why I can't because it's copyrighted and. Right. It's not the same as being on the radio. Right. Exactly. Where radio pays for all that stuff. Right. and, you know, you can you can do it if you get licenses, but, it, you know, it takes forever. Right. So, you know, if you have 100 podcasts in the can, maybe you can start on 99 and get a license for that one. And, but, you know, is it worth it? In the end, probably not. That's know, why in that the description of the podcast, I make a corresponding playlist because like this playlist, okay. we talked about so much stuff that you'll be able to go to the playlist that's in that's linked in the show notes of the episode of the podcast and you know, because I figured if people are listening, they're going to hear us talk about an artist that they might not recognize or an album they might not know or a song we referenced. And they know, hey, right. there's a playlist there with all of this stuff there. And I hope it turns people on. You know, speaking of generating a playlist in radio, it's kind of the same thing that I want to still right. be able to kind of expose people to this music that they may not have heard of before. And these conversations on podcasts kind of, oh, I learn something different every time about music and artists and songwriting, engineering, all of that stuff. And it's great because, you know, a lot of music fans, you know, they, they think they know, and then they read a tabloid or whatever and, you know, go internet searching and they find some weird thing. I mean, I've been asked some very, very strange questions, you know, and <laughs> like, where did you get that from? Oh, the internet. Wikipedia. Okay, well, yeah, Wikipedia is another one. It's like, that's the truth, right? It's like, well, is it on the internet? It's like, yeah. It's like, I can edit my own Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, you, I can edit your Wikipedia, which is even the worst thing ever. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's, 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 it's what it is. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I think it's, I think it's really cool for that. And, and what's, 
what's awesome is that it's it it exposes you to those same tribes, right? That you find a podcast That's you right. love, and then you hear about another podcast, and then you go there, and you're like, oh wait. You go through their episodes and like, oh, I really want to hear that one. That sounds really interesting. And then you get turned on to something else. And and it all kind of feeds into this community of music lovers again, which is what I I knew podcasting was huge when, when I was just on the air at AAF. I had a podcast there for a while, but I was very surprised at how welcomed I was into the podcast community coming from that radio background and now doing both has been really interesting because they both have strengths and weaknesses, you know? Absolutely. They do. And, you know, we can get global with this here podcast. Yeah. I'm in 114 countries now. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I don't know who's listening to me in India and in Bangladesh, but but hello, but hello. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's cool. You know, there's a lot of heavy metal and hard rock fans down in South America that they're listening oh, yeah, to. It's sure. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. South America has a lot of heavy metal fans down there going on for sure. And Europe, you know, we haven't really covered Europe. Europe is one of the best places for music and entertainment in general. Um, I don't know how much you've traveled in your life, but, you know, I've, I've, you know, you've done a, you've done a whole bunch of traveling. I know I've done a shit ton of traveling and yeah. world tours and all that nonsense. And, you know, what the, the thing that always gets me as Europeans is their love for entertainment, period. Right. They work hard and they play hard. So, and you can go to a festival in Europe and there can be, you know, 50 to a hundred thousand people there and they can put on gore. And then the next thing can be Mary had a little lamb. And then the next thing, I mean, <laughs> it's the, the lineup of artists is every genre that they want. Which period. goes against the whole format thing you and I were talking about. Right. But because that's only here in the U.S. Right. right? I mean, I, I don't know. Like they must have the same kind of guidelines in, in Europe of, for radio, but I don't know. It's um, like the BBC is not uh, the same. It's it, it's not the same kind of thing that it is here. And. I mean, I went yeah, and saw Judas Priest open. in Bucharest, Romania, and there were like nice. 75-year-old dudes with like five-year-olds on their back. It was like four generations of heavy metal fans in the family watching Judas Priest. It was unbelievable. Talk about That's tribal. Awesome. Like everyone in Bucharest had a Judas Priest t-shirt on, and everyone was going to the show that night. It was so cool. Nice. Nice, yeah. <laughs> and Japan's like that, too. That's right. Japan is way like that. There's, you know, many generations of, of families in, in Japan that you'll see it shows. And, you know, I, I really like that, you know, that I've had the influence that I've had in music. Um, it just, you know, it warms my heart because people come up to me a lot. You know, they I had three or four people at that podcast thing come up to me and tell me, thank you very much for making blank record because it changed my life. You know what I mean? And that to me, I wasn't trying to change anybody's life. I'm, you know, just trying to make music and I know music heals and I know music helps. So, you know, to just make the best music that I can with the best artists that I can at the time given, that's my goal always, you know? Well, that's what was so hard about losing AAF was that it was, that it was part of people's life. I mean, it was part of my life, obviously for years, but like, you know, when there was bad news to deliver, 
you know, Ugh. everything from the marathon bombing, like I was telling you, or 9-11, or the death of a an artist that meant the world to all of us, or, right. you know, amazing news, happy news, great news, you know, about records or albums or whatever. I mean, the weight of responsibility of being the person that delivers that stuff, especially the, the bad stuff. You know what I mean? Like right. the last oh, example, yeah. you know, right before we went off the air, Neil Peart died. And Mike Shue that I worked with for over 20 years, that's his favorite band. And there wasn't okay. anybody more qualified to take over the radio station that afternoon and pay Neil Peart the, the proper tribute than him. And I mean- right. So many people still come up to me as we get ready to commemorate the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And like the world was very different 20 years ago when it came to the immediacy of technology, you know, Twitter and all that immediate, the internet wasn't what the internet is now 20 years ago. And people come up all the time and they're like, you are part of that memory for me. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and that, you know, you don't like the reason why, but, but when someone tells you that that you are part of something special in their life, the way that they were telling you about how those albums saved their life, changed their life, that's pretty special stuff. It really is. Especially when, you know, you're not trying to do that. You're just doing your job, right? Yeah. And you're doing your job to the best of your ability every single day. You give it 152% and boom. And, and, you know, in your case, you know, you, you sit behind the microphone, you're a DJ and, you know, you got to tell it like it is, you know, and, and so many, you know, I'll, I'll never forget of me growing up, you know, six, seven, eight years old, listen to WPLR in Long Island and New York, like, oh, this is the best thing ever. And I remember the DJs and I even remember the tone of their voices. That's like really silly, but, you know like the music that they would play and mom, can I call in and I want to make a request, mom, come on. <laughs> She'd be like, go outside and play. <laughs> I would, I always used to think like, all right, the bright purple hair. Like if, if anybody knows it's me, it's going to be because of that. It's the tone right. of the voice. Exactly. I get exactly. recognized because people hear my voice more than anything. If I'm talking to the cashier at the supermarket, somebody will go, are you Mistress Carrie? And I'm like, did the hair give me away? And they're like, no, I know the voice. No. <laughs> exactly. So how'd you get your name, by the way? The audience I gave it to me. So I, I started okay. on the air at AAF at night. And I was the only okay. girl on the air. And it was kind of like a trial thing. Like I was a roadie before I was a DJ. You know, I had. Okay. And. So I was like driving trucks and rigging lights and running cables and whatever, and had been working on the promotions department at AAF and had applied for every job. And they, they took a flyer and said, let's put this girl on at night and see, she, she knows the band, she knows the crew, she knows what she's talking about. And after, cool. a, after like a month or two, people started calling and they'd be like, I spend every night with you. And my wife, and you're the other woman in my life, and it's like I have a mistress and my wife's okay with it. And it just okay. kind of happened that way. Like, it stuck. Then I started playing phone calls with people calling me Mistress Carrie, and then the radio station was like, oh, that's... Then they made bumper stickers, and then... 
Nice. It just became this thing. And it was like, oh, you know, Carrie, oh, Mistress Carrie. Oh, yeah. Like it, it stuck. And it wasn't anything right, that I had ever intended. It wasn't something I planned. I didn't name myself that. It didn't hurt that I had bright purple hair and wore black all the time and like fit this image people had in their head. But back sure. when I started on the air, the internet was in its infancy. It's not like a lot of people knew what I looked like at the time until I went out in public and was introducing bands on stage. They just went right. by me being this mysterious woman on the air at night that because I was on the air at night, that was the show that took all the chances on the new bands too. Absolutely. So, so I would be playing stuff first and was going to the shows and became friends with the bands. And then it was like, well, if anybody's going to know what's going on about an album, a concert, well, Mistress Carrie would know. And then the band started like giving me shout outs from the stage. And at that point it was like this name, whether you like it or not is stuck. Like you're not, you're not getting rid of it at that point. And I mean, now it's like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's been 23 years. Like, wow. Yeah. All right. I'm stuck with it now, but I'm fine with it. Like I love it. You know? Yeah. Why not? So people will go, do I call you mistress or can I just call you Carrie? Or like, so some people call me mistress. Some people call me Carrie. Some people call me MC, which I kind of love okay. too. Right, right. So whatever. But yeah, it just, it was okay. a name that the audience gave me. And it's, it's one of those things I think with, with anybody that when, when you're, when your fans care enough to give you a nickname. Right, exactly. Then you run with it. That's right. That's right. Because you you gotta love those fans, and those those are the people that are paying attention. Yeah. You know, and and those are the ones that you know, you you kind of have to you massage along because you know they love you, and they want you know they just want more interaction. Well, that and, and that late nineties, early two thousands era of rock. I mean, that was especially for a woman, right? When it was really heavy, when that new metal stuff and, and that I was a woman in rock that wasn't around because I was the girlfriend of the bands or whatever, that it was like, I knew what I was talking about and the bands respected me and befriended me and gave me that respect and showed that respect to me in front of the audience that like, like if you go and watch the Woodstock 99 documentary about the sausage fest at Woodstock and how awful it was for women and all of that kind of stuff, like that era of time, I didn't feel like that because I I felt like I was, I guess I was looked at different. Like, like if somebody had like show your tits, like the guy next to her would have been like, "Don't you fucking disrespect her like that!" And like punch her in the punch him in the head or something. Like <laughs> it was just I had it was like I was in this weird heavy metal like bubble or something. Right. You right. know. I mean, there were always the knuckleheads, but like I I think that I earned this reputation for knowing what I was talking about, and and the bands exactly the bands kind of showed the fans like, no, she. Just because she's a girl doesn't mean she doesn't know what she's talking about. Like she knows what she's talking about. Right. Exactly. So and that's a fabulous place to come from too. Yeah, you know, for just, sure. You know, cause it, it empowers you male or, or female, you know what I mean? 
and anybody put in that situation and you feel like, oh, okay. And you're lifted up and, you know, you're, you're able to take what you have to the next level with confidence. Well, it, you know what I mean? It comes up a lot now where, you know, back then it was like a radio station needed a female DJ, but they only needed one. And if you were playing female fronted rock with my bunny ear quotes, you only needed one. (laughs) And if you had a chick band on the air, you, you got, you check, we got a chick band on the air next onto the next thing. I don't think music is like that so much anymore. Rock stations have multiple women on the air now. There's, there's bands that just happen to have female members of it, whether they're the singer or not. They're, the drummers, the bass players, the guitar players. Like, it's less of this novelty thing now where I think women have found a place in rock and roll that's taken them a long time to get there. And we're all standing on the shoulders of, like, Anna Nancy Wilson and Joan Jett and Stevie Nicks where there were just these women oh, yeah. that were, like, or and Janis Joplin, before right. and like there were just these women that just broke all the rules and showed that they could stand on their own and and make music people wanted to listen to not just because they were women right exactly and that that goes all the way back to the 40s too oh sure you know with with all the blues artists that came out and you know all that kind of stuff and man it just I don't know. I grew up listening to all that kind of stuff because my mom was so very influential, you know, in the household of what we listened to. It was her way or the highway. So, you know, I got to, I got to listen to everything, (laughs) which was great, you know, because my dad was in the jazz too. So, you know, I got the whole jazz side of things, you know, with the jazz vocal thing. And then I got the, the rock thing, you know, definitely, 24 seven with my mom. Yeah. You know, so that was, that was really good. And, you know, as I look past my camera right here, there's a, a big collection of albums sitting over there that, you know, I I've had to collect over the years just cause I love all that kind of music. Yeah. And know? albums are cool, man. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I started just fired up my, my turntable and my whole system the other day. And I was so proud of myself. It's fantastic. Where I got to get somebody to fix mine. Somebody's got to fix my turntable. Cause it's, old and need some love yeah there you go i said something to somebody i said i said i think i need a new needle and they were like you mean a stylus and i was like oh fuck okay i don't even know the terms anymore (laughs) it's a needle damn it yeah i think i need a needle right so not the kind you're thinking of i need a different one yeah exactly (laughs) but i think i i think that it's it's really cool that the chick part of it I mean, it makes you special, but not an anomaly anymore. You know, right, that, that like that female fronted, like, like that it's not, it's not this special label. Like what we're talking about, like, like, oh, well, it's a female fronted rock band. Like it was a whole other thing on Mars. Like it's not even the, it can't be a rock band. Right. It's a female fronted rock band. And now there's so much great music coming out from bands that have, girls in them that it's it's almost stupid to point it out like it's a novelty anymore exactly exactly well i'm going to point out a novelty i have a a, a, a band called frame 42 from lapeer michigan you should check them out okay um and it's a dual female fronted band wow okay so so this took some doing right 
and uh, you know these girls were singing together, and but they were treating each other like, "Hey, I'm the lead singer, and you're my side chick." And when I got on scene, it was like, eh, "That's not working for me. It doesn't matter anymore." Like, to, in order to make this band special, you guys got to come up with a, a different way. Like, how about if we do two female lead singers, and you guys play off of each other, and whatever the song calls for, that's your part. So. I went to pre-production. We wrote a bunch of songs. They wrote a bunch of songs. I came in and rearranged and so on and so forth and got these girls to actually sing together and be and have and share the lead uh, vocal duties. And which was quite hard because, you know, they both have egos. They both have great voices. And but they realized by trading off that there's something special here. So go check out Frame 42. They're an amazing band. They're very young. Um, the youngest member, I think, is 16, and the oldest is 20 or 19 now. Wow. Uh, she just, yeah, she, I, I think she just turned 20. Um, and yeah, they're something special. Well, there's there's they plenty really of are. examples in rock and roll with like dual. Fr- I mean, you look at you know something like Lincoln Park, where it's like Lincoln Park wouldn't oh, sound yeah. the same without either one. Right, exactly. And then you, you know, then you go to something like the harmonies of Alice in Chains, and it's like if it were True. just Lane singing and Jerry wasn't there, it wouldn't sound the same. Like it, it, it's, correct. The same know. with Heart. Yeah, right? Heart, or like the harmonies in Van Halen, or right, all Journey. I mean, all of that that great rock stuff. It's it's so layered in there that oh, I want to. All right, I'm going to go check these guys out, girls out, whatever. All of them. There's six of them. So four guys, they all play instruments and two girls, they don't. And they just sing. Well, one of them plays the piano really well. So, Wow. See, that's one of the cool things about the Mistress Carrie podcast is that you find out about music that you might not have known about. That's right. Which and is the cool. one good thing about My Right Stuff podcast is you meet people that you might not know about. Like Mr. Scary. Aww, this was fun. I've never, uh, we've, I've never done the the co-hosted simulcasted podcast thing. I know it's pretty cool, right? Interviewing. I feel like we've been playing tennis. It's weird, asking each other questions. (laughs) Lob to you, Toby. Exactly. Well, I'm so glad that we got a chance to get caught up in Nashville and that we sat down and made time to do this because. Um, Absolutely. Thank you. You you bring such an interesting perspective of being that person in the studio that's like the conductor of the orchestra. And you've worked on so right. many artist projects that we know and love that were so important to us that, you know, you're not a member of the band, but you were there and, and you bring interesting perspective on all of that. That's a, It was a lot of fun and I want to keep on keeping on. So you and me both listening. Anybody listening who wants a record done, call me. I'll be careful about that. You're going to get some weird calls from the people that listen to my show. You're going to get some weird calls, bro. Bring it, bring it. (laughs) I got an email. (laughs) You can filter it all out. Well, I will put, I'll put all your links in the show notes of the podcast on my end so people can find you. Thank you. And I'll do the same for you as well. Um, Yeah. And we'll go from there. Awesome. Thank you very much. I Thank you. It. We spent two, almost two and a half hours. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Did you think it was going to be short? You know me. No. Do you I, think you're going to shut too. me up? I... <laughs> yeah, that'll be the day. 
Here he is, record producer extraordinaire and podcast host, Toby Wright. If you're looking for Toby or his podcast, My Right Stuff, you can find the links in the show notes of this podcast. You'll also find the corresponding playlist, which is filled with tons of music that we referenced in the episode. You'll also find all the links to find me as well, including mistresscarry.com, where you can check out my official online store. Thanks once again to our sponsors, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org and Jaggin Detroit Podcasts at jaggindetroit.com. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything from the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the Situation Report. The Sit Rep gives you all your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. And you can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on my Facebook page for my show Cocktails in the War Room. And if you're looking for more Mistress Carrie, get a Mistress Carrie backstage pass on Patreon. MistressCarrie.com has the details on everything. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.